0: uh I, I don't know about you but i've literally like i've been like i've had trouble sleeping the last couple of nights like Dude, i'm I woke so up pumped early this morning I, like, yeah. <laughs> I woke up at yeah i woke up at 6 30 and like uh went for i ran down here to the office and like i spent all last night and all today just like getting hype
1: Welcome to season four, episode four of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert.
0: I'm David Rosenthal.
1: And we are your hosts. Well, David, as Vince Vaughn once said to Owen Wilson in Wedding Crashers, it's wedding season, kid. <laughs> <laughs> the IPO floodgates are open, and we are here with the very first one of 2019, the Lyft IPO. Yeah, I am so excited. I know. Well, obviously, this is an important moment for Lyft and ride-sharing broadly, but what it represents for the entire technology industry is possibly even greater, that the good times can continue. We've had a serious drought in big tech IPOs over the last few years, with most of these companies opting to famously stay private longer. There was significant risk that the public markets do not value these unicorns as highly as the late-stage private investment market has been. If Lyft had not overcome its last private valuation, we'd be seeing a lot of articles right now about how valuations for startups across the board would drop and times could get tough. Now, we've still got a lot more IPOs ahead, and we've just seen one day of trading. But from what we know, where we sit today, people in the technology
0: ecosystem everywhere can breathe easy. Yeah, the signs are good. I mean, this is... This is huge. We've never seen anything like this before. This is a whole generation of of tech companies that are all going to go public all all in the next you know probably two months
1: here and and seriously pent up demand. I mean all these companies the the full A plus uh, as <laughs> as David and I were joking. You've about. heard
0: of Fang now the the A plus.
1: <laughs> what is it? Airbnb, Pinterest, Lyft, Uber. Slack, you know, all from different sort of eras of of, uh, of tech over the last you know decade, decade and a half, you know, all raising so much in the private markets, and and here all in the next six months, all really, uh, really IPOing.
0: Yeah, here they are. Playoff atmosphere. Indeed. Let's get to it.
1: Well, uh, I do have to say, the limited partner bonus show that we've been doing, uh, the one that we did uh, with David's partner Sarah, was so timely and so awesome. Uh, because Sarah used to run Corp Dev at Airbnb and before that at Dropbox. So on the heels of the Airbnb Hotel Tonight deal that um, now funnily enough, feels sort of like old news, uh, we <laughs> got her inside take on Airbnb's strategy with uh, mergers and acquisitions, uh, how to build corporate development functions within companies, and we uh, speculated just a bit on where they might be going with with Hotel Tonight. So if you want to listen to that and, and many other uh, great LP episodes and become a limited partner, you can do that in literally 10 seconds and i promise you literally 10 seconds with just two taps and you can listen to the show right here in whatever podcast player you use for all of your podcast listening so you can click the link in the show notes or you can go to kimberlite.fm slash acquired to join and uh david i'm, I'm not kidding 10 seconds and uh, and you can uh, you can join and listen right here so
0: it's awesome um, man the people behind that kimberlite company are really talented <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, spoiler alert! But... That's that's well us, but mostly Ben. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, lastly, before we dive in, I want to say uh, uh, thank you to the great sponsors of all of season four, Perkins Cooey, Counsel to Great Companies. We have with us today Kara Tatman, a partner in the M and A practice and the public company practice at Perkins Cooey. Now, Kara, I know you have a lot of thoughts about the off-discussed on this show dual track. Can you give us some context around that, why it's important right now, and really what is counsel's role in the process?
2: Sure. So a dual track is when a company runs an M&A sale track at the same time as an IPO track. And companies do this to increase flexibility and the likelihood of a favorable exit. But the dual track also increases demands on management and expands the complexity generally since you have two distinct fast-paced transactions going on. In addition to relieving burden on management in just running both processes, counsel will advise on the overall dual-track strategy to help maximize a company's leverage. Um, Counsel will also have a particular focus on confidentiality in the M&A process, along with disclosure requirements and securities compliance in the IPO track. And really, as long as they have the bandwidth, I think many companies will continue to take the dual-track whenever they're considering an IPO. And I'm also a listener of the show, and I was just re-listening to the season four trailer. And I know you guys are pretty excited about possible unicorn IPOs. So I guess we'll all have to wait and see whether any of those turn into M and A sales instead.
1: (laughs) Indeed. Thank you, Kara, and thanks so much for being a listener. If you want to learn more about Perkins Cooey or reach out to Kara specifically, you can click the link in the show notes or in Slack. So to set the stage for David here. As he dives into the history and facts, (laughs) we sit here on Saturday, March 30th, the day after the Lyft IPO. The company raised $2.3 billion in its IPO, priced with a market cap or basically a valuation at the top of their expected range, which they had already increased once on their roadshow, of $24 billion and closed its first day of trading up above $26 billion. So, David... How on earth did we get here?
0: (laughs) I am so excited to tell the story and all the stories (laughs) behind this. Uh, So we're going to tell the history of Lyft and how Lyft, the company that became Lyft, Zimride, that transformed into Lyft, uh, how it got here, how peer-to-peer ride-sharing became an industry. It's hard to believe now, but just, just about seven short years ago, it did not exist uh, and is now one of the largest you know, technology-enabled markets in the entire world. What we are not going to talk about on this show is the history of Uber, which is quite different. We will save that for the Uber IPO show, which is coming later this season, hopefully. And, and Uber started differently. It was not peer-to-peer ride sharing to start. And it wasn't until 2013 after Lyft was around when they pivoted into that. But we'll get into it. We have a long story to tell. It is a story of of transformation, metamorphoses. Story of betrayal. A story of good and evil. Basically, your typical acquired episode. <laughs> so here like, we go. Uh, it's a it's a nonfiction thriller. Indeed. Oh man, this is a thriller. Okay. So we begin our tale in the 1990s with two young men who are growing up uh, at complete opposite ends of the country but would one day be drawn together by fate. And on the one side of the country on the West Coast, we have Logan Green, who's growing up in Culver City in Los Angeles. And his parents are um, sort of leftover hippies. His, his parents are a doctor and a veterinarian, but they're pretty, they're pretty activists. And, and previously they had helped organize farm labor unions and they really encourage their, their children and, and Logan to um, take, you know, that kind of outlook on life. Uh, and Logan really takes after them, but uh, unlike them and their activist roots, he's, he's pretty introverted and, and focused. Um, and so Logan, growing up, he, he teaches himself how to code. He's really interested in computers and coding. And in eighth grade, this is typical of him, he asks his parents to move the family television out of the living room and into the garage because it is too distracting from what he is trying to learn to code and accomplish in life. <laughs> Amazing.
1: I can't say that was me.
0: Yeah, definitely (laughs) not me either. I was like, can we move the TV into my room? (laughs) And that's why he is the CEO of Lyft and (laughs) we we are doing acquired. Yeah, we do a podcast. (laughs) Um so in high school, this is amazing. Uh Logan ends up getting a part-time job. You know, he's learned how to code. He gets a part-time job working for a company in Los Angeles called UWink. Now, what is UWink? U Wink is The uh, third or fourth, maybe even farther along company from Nolan Bushnell, the founder and CEO of Atari, who hired Steve Jobs, uh, who then went on and started Chuck E. Cheese.
1: I had no idea that that one, I have no idea that uh, uh, U wink was a Nolan Bushnell company. But two, I remember when I was an intern at Cisco and moved out to California and went to Mountain View for the first time and was walking down, I think it's Castro Street or Castro Avenue. And you see like, basically see like all the Web 2.0 logos that you're used to seeing on your browser just sort of like jump back from physical signs on each side of the sidewalk. And I remember the Wink building. I even think I have a picture in front of the Wink building because it's just so, it just felt so like emblematic of the whole Web 2.0 time period.
0: That's amazing. Uh, that's amazing. Well, it started down in LA because uh, Nolan after Atari, I believe when he started Chuck E. Cheese and moved down to LA. And um, uh, it's, it's, you know, incredible. Nolan hires, you know, first, Steve Jobs and, and and then Logan Green. <laughs> and so Logan, this was in high school. He had his driver's license at this point. He His high school was in Santa Monica, and Ewing's, uh headquarters was in Playa del Rey, which if you know LA, Playa del Rey is not far from Santa Monica. I think it's about five or six miles. It's also on the west side of LA. But if you know LA traffic or LA traffic before Lyft and Uber... It was a nightmare to get over there, a beast. And uh, so so Logan has his high school car, an old 1989 740 Volvo that his parents gave him when he got his license. Classic, classic old hippie car. Awesome. And so he's spending all of this time after school commuting over to his job in Playa Del Rey. And he's like, he's just sitting there and he's like, this is insane. All of this traffic, all of this time wasted, all of this gas wasted, all this environmental impact, this is crazy. And he starts thinking that maybe he can make a difference and maybe he should dedicate himself once he grows up to eliminating traffic. And as we will see, that is what he, uh, that is what he does and makes a big dent in it. So he goes off to college at UC Santa Barbara, about two hours north of L.A., And initially he majors in computer science, but eventually he switches to economics and he's really all in on this mission to solve traffic. He decides he is going to leave his car at home and commit to only commuting back and forth from L.A. to Santa Barbara with public transit. And this is like insane. I mean, it makes total sense to drive (laughs) from L.A. to Santa Barbara. People do it all the time. So it's actually like kind of a huge pain that he does this. And his sophomore year in college, he learns about Zipcar. Zipcar had just been been started uh, a few years before. And he tries to get them to come to UCSB. They refuse. And he reaches out to them. And so he says, okay, great. Well, I'll start my own car sharing program at UCSB. So he he convinces, uh, this is going to become a theme here. He convinces the university to buy a small fleet of Toyota Priuses and then Logan basically reverse engineers the entire way that the Zipcar system works. So if you remember at the time, you had a card that was like a prop oh, yeah. card. you hold it up to the windshield. You hold it up to the windshield, and then that unlocks the the door. So so Logan like reverse engineers this, and he installs these on the, the University of Santa Barbara's Priuses that they had <laughs> that they had bought, and uh, he gets like a couple thousand students at the university to start using it. Pretty awesome. Yeah. But there's one thing, though, that that's not helpful for us. So this is great for getting around Santa Barbara for students. But when they go home for breaks and when Logan's going home to L.A., you can't just like take one of these Priuses down to L.A. And so he has to find find other ways to get around his lack of a car. So he tries he goes on Craigslist and Craigslist has a portion has a board called uh, ride sharing, which is meant for this purpose. And it's, you know, people saying like, Hey, I'm going from Santa Barbara to LA or wherever. And like, you know, if you want to come in and join me and like pitch in for gas, like we can do it. So Logan tries this a couple of times, but he's like a serious introvert and is is really uncomfortable doing this. So he realizes this kind of isn't, isn't the best way, isn't the best way to do it. So (laughs) ever the missionary here, he takes the next step. He's still a student at UCSB. He joins the Santa Barbara public transit board, like the municipal authority that governs public transit in the city of Santa Barbara. <laughs> I'm assuming
1: he's like the youngest ever or something. He is the he
0: becomes the youngest board member ever. <laughs> and he thinks, okay, maybe this is the way that I can accomplish my mission and and solve these problems. And it turns out it's not. <laughs> he, all he learns is basically a bunch of depressing stuff. One, he learns that 70% of the cost of every public transit ride in the city is subsidized by the city. So if you know people talk about Lyft losing money on every ride today, uh, most municipalities, public bus systems and train systems lose money on every ride. Yeah. and uh, And it's super hard to get stuff done, try new things or even incremental innovations on on the existing system so the next year uh this is the summer before his senior year he and his best friend from high school guy named matt van horn they decide no way yes that matt van horn Horn? that matt van horn best friends from high school in santa monica they decide they're going to do a big international trip in their junior year summer before coming back for senior year. And initially, they want to go to Cuba. But Matt's mom, at this point in time, it was illegal to go to Cuba if you were a U.S. citizen. A world Matt's world. mom so basically world. bribes them to go to Africa instead. <laughs> so they go. They spend, uh, I don't know if it was a month or two months in Africa. And while they're in Africa, they go to Zimbabwe. And they see this thing that just like to Logan for his mission just like blows his you know 21-year-old mind. He's used to all this traffic in the U.S., And in Zimbabwe, which is this incredibly poor country at the time, almost nobody actually owns a car, but people get around the country and the cities super easily by there are unlicensed drivers, unlicensed taxi drivers who own or at least operate minivans. And they just like have the minivan and they people come up to them like, hey, I'm going here. They get in the car. They wait until they fill up the minivan and then they drive and they drop people off along the way. It's kind of like a line, Line. you know, (laughs) it's like a line and, uh, and everybody pays a little bit and like the system works. There's no organization, like there's no app, there's no booking. It just sort of organically works. And so Logan's like, man, like Matt, like this is super cool. Maybe there's a way.
1: I, I know, I know. I'm like throwing you off here, but like we both just, for listener's sake, for people who don't know who Matt Van Horn is, can you can you tell us that so we don't just leave oh, everyone yeah.
0: hanging? No, no, no I well, I was going to bring it up with um, because Matt actually, not oft talked about, becomes the third co-founder of Zimride of the company that would become Lyft, but oh, he does not go full time instead matt was at the university of arizona instead after graduation he joins dig and he becomes a <laughs> relatively early employee at dig and then uh, an executive at path and yep. man, remember path path was so good it's too bad it didn't work
1: still could <laughs> still could
0: i think it's shut down now right
1: well an- another one could another one could yeah good
0: yeah private social <laughs> In- network
1: and Matt now runs June Oven, right? June
0: Oven. Yep. He is the CEO and co-founder of June Oven.
1: Uh, so moral of the story, everyone should take a trip to Zimbabwe in, uh, in college.
0: Well, I think uh, that and tech theme we often talk about here on Acquired that is going to become super obvious through this episode and the Uber episode. It's a small world out there. <laughs> like, yeah. It's all the same people and are very incestuous in all of these industries and sub-industries. So... <laughs> Matt and, and Logan, they come back from their adventures in Zimbabwe, and Logan starts his his senior year at, at UCSB, and this idea is, is percolating in his head, uh, so much so he decides he's going to – he hasn't figured out how to how exactly to do this by the time graduation rolls around in summer 2006, but he takes a job at the university working as a sustainability coordinator just so he can stay there and kind of keep percolating all the, on all this – Meanwhile, on the other side of the country, <laughs> in a in a very very different environment from you know uh, leftover hippie parents in uh, on the west side of LA, and then certainly Santa Barbara in Greenwich, Connecticut, another young man is growing up, a man named John Zimmer, no relation to. Zimride. <laughs> <laughs> no, re, no really relation, soon to be relation to Zimride, but no relation to Zimbabwe.
1: Yeah. Can we just like for a quick moment pause here and recognize? So this only came out when I was doing the research. How crazy is it that Lyft's previous name was Zimride and that has zero to do with the fact that one of the co founders is, is John Zimmer and it has everything to do with the fact that the other co founder went to Zimbabwe?
0: And also, totally ironic that, you know, compared to uh, its lyft's big rival uber lyft does not operate internationally <laughs> or it does in canada <laughs> um uh, does not operate intercontinentally despite having started in in zimbabwe spiritually <laughs> yes so john zimmer is growing up in greenwich connecticut which for uh, I think most of our audience probably knows but for those who don't Greenwich Connecticut is basically ground zero for hedge fund managers uh, and is one of if not the wealthiest zip code uh, in the United States and uh, for some reason it's like a moths to a flame of like hedge fund managers <laughs> to to Green- living in Greenwich Connecticut it's a suburb of New York in uh, of New York City and uh, so John's growing up there surrounded by all this, incredible incredible wealth like ridiculous wealth but for whatever reason like that doesn't like have a a huge attraction to him at least at that at that moment his dad is an executive at dixie cups the uh <laughs> which is incredible it took me a little bit of digging to find that i was trying to figure out like what did his family do so like you know they're they're super comfortable they're well off but they're not you know in the same league as uh in terms of wealth as all cups, these hedge fund cups
1: had been flying off the shelves i mean yeah. things were times were good
0: yeah he's a marketing executive at at dixie cups maybe uh, a lot of that ends uh, up influencing uh influencing lyft later we'll see. So. John, though, just like Logan, is equally as focused on what he wants his life mission to be and and, and learns it uh, just as early in life. But instead of traffic and transportation, he wants to work in hotels. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. seriously, that's his dream when he's in, like, middle school and high school is hotels. Ironically, he did not start Airbnb.
1: But that's a different type of, uh, you know. You can see the parallel to hospitality and and uh, and sort of
0: experience crafting. Yeah, and this isn't just. I'm not just like making this up. This isn't just you know after the fact. It was so like, oh yeah, like I wanted to do hotels in high school. He goes to the Hyatt Regency in uh, in Greenwich, the hotel there, and he basically talks the man, forces the manager there into giving him a job, even though he's underage. So they have to like call up their lawyers <laughs> and find a way for like allow him to work because he so desperately wants to work there even though he's not yet 18
1: (laughs) this is like the uh this is the equivalent
0: of uh of putting the tv in the garage exactly this is this is his equivalent um so he goes there and he he ends up he answers the phone so like this is guests calling from rooms with like hey i've got a problem in my room like come fix it this is people calling to make reservations etc like most people would hate this job john loves this job and he loves it so much that. When it comes time to go to college, he applies to go to Cornell, which is a great school, of course, and, and close by. But most importantly, Cornell has the best hotel management program in probably the entire world. As mm-hmm. an undergrad, you can major in hotel management at, at Cornell. And not only does John do that... He ends up graduating number one in his class. This dude is like really, really good at hotels, <laughs> <laughs> which is incredible. But while he's there, though, he, he takes this class at Cornell called Creating Green Cities and Sustainable Futures. And I don't know if this was in the hotel management school or or broadly, did more you, broadly. Did like, you look Cornell. up the
1: curriculum or something? I did. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: I actually did. Yeah. And he realizes as part of this class that transportation within cities is this like you know really inefficient and big problem that is contributing to all this pollution and all these problems within cities and yet at the same time there is this emerging mega 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 trend in the whole world of urbanization and people around the world uh continuing to move to cities and that this is Mm going to get even more problematic and this kind of light bulb goes off in john's head and he says oh wow this is a huge problem everything I've learned about hotel management, and literally, you know, he knows a lot. He's number one in his class at hotel management at the best school in the world for it, is that the key to success in hotels is occupancy rates. And he's like, and I'm looking at like transportation in cities and I'm thinking about these cars. And the thing about cars is 90 some odd percent of rides are one person in one seat in a car that's typically seats, you know, five or seven people. Yeah. Huge waste. How do I bring everything I've learned about occupancy rates in hotels? What if I move that over to transportation? Could I make a big impact here? Yeah. There's there's just stale inventory everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. It's kind of amazing that he didn't start Airbnb. (laughs) That's another episode to come. So this is all percolating in John's head, but he's also not quite ready to, he doesn't know what the right right thing is to do, right angle of attack. So senior year rolls around and he ends up doing what, you know, all Ivy League students at the time, uh, myself included, did, uh, is you go work on Wall Street and become an investment banking analyst. <laughs> and so-
1: glorious, glorious, uh, noble cause of, the, uh, of applying the most brilliant minds to, uh, well, you know, a training ground.
0: It is. It is a training ground, and I, you know, I don't regret for a minute that I did it, and and I think John probably doesn't either, because it's the summer of two thousand six when he graduates, and he goes to work as an investment banking analyst at Lehman Brothers, <laughs> and uh, great reputation. I uh, mean, fantastic firm, and really at the moment Lehman was really on the rise. Yep, setting itself up for a big fall <laughs> to come uh, to come shortly, which we'll get into. So. John goes off. He's working on Wall Street at Lehman Brothers in New York City. Logan is, you know, back from Zimbabwe. He's graduated. He's working as a sustainability coordinator at UC Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. How on earth did these two guys get together? <laughs> so Logan, he he's realizing as he's thinking about this, and he's thinking about Craigslist rideshare section, and he realizes the big problem is trust. Like, how do I trust when I get in a car with somebody that they're not going to, you know, do something bad. And, yep. and likewise, if I'm driving, how do I trust that the person who gets in my car is not going to do something bad?
1: Which frankly, looking at how big ride sharing is today, and there have been some horrific incidents, but like percentage wise, it is remarkable how it basically
0: goes off without a hitch. It, 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 it's incredible. And that was not the case on Craigslist ride sharing. So that fall in 2006. Logan sees an announcement that changes everything and that announcement that changes everything for lots of people is that Facebook, which was the (laughs) hottest company, you know, hottest startup in the world at that time, and certainly especially hot with college students and recent college graduates, announces Mm -hmm. that they are going to open up their platform and invite developers onto it and and have their first API and allow people to make apps that include the social graph. And so inspiration strikes, hits Logan, and he immediately realizes this is it. This is what is gonna Mm -hmm. crack this problem and solve trust with ride sharing, is that if you build the app, if you build the application on top of Facebook, you can see who you're riding with and see people's real identities and see who your mutual friends are. And you can message back and forth beforehand. And that might be exactly the wedge that he needs to, uh, to crack the problem. I
1: remember how crazy it was. So first of all, it was like very easy in 2012 to create a, I know we're, I'm pulling forward it here a little bit, but like the ease to create an account, because I think the only way to create an account was logging in with Facebook at that point. Mm -hmm. And how crazy it was that, like it sort of made sense on other apps where I'm like, okay, I can see who else is using this app that's my friend. It was, for whatever reason, it felt like the next step further that I could see what mutual friends I had in common with the driver. Mm-hmm. Like when someone was picking me up, I was like, oh, it was it was the most wonderfully sort of uh, humanizing thing to see like, oh, you have two mutual friends with this person that's picking you up. It is uh, It instantly takes you to a place where you're going to treat the experience completely differently than you would a random stranger.
0: Completely differently. Uh, Not just in terms of trusting that nothing bad is going to happen. Like, that's the worst case scenario. But there's also, you know, how is this person going to behave in my car? There's Well, yeah, there's upside opportunities. You know, people end up meeting, developing friendships, you know, relationships, getting married, like all this stuff (laughs) in cars (laughs) uh, via via Zim rides. But yeah, there's also like, is this person going to trash my car? You know, are they uh all this stuff um logan sees this he says this is the opportunity he quickly builds and launches an app on the facebook platform called carpool it's a facebook app called carpool and he decides to call the platform behind the app Zimrides because he's like yeah the inspiration came from zimbabwe like this is what i'm doing zim rides great and th- this was 2008 this was end of 2006 End of so 2006, okay. The company is not officially started yet. He's just calling the platform Zimrads. He teams back up with Matt Van Horn, the buddy from, from wow. the trip to, to Zimbabwe. Uh, Matt's a, at Arizona, and they start working on this remotely together. And then in the next spring in may of 2007 is when facebook publicly launches the they had announced that they were opening up Mm. the api in the fall of 2006 they publicly launched the platform i think this was the first f8 it it must have been the first f8 when they do this yeah i think so and and logan had he gotten early access to the apis and built the app and carpool slash zimride is featured as one of the first apps when facebook launches the facebook platform This is incredible
1: It just goes to show the power of being there on launch day at one of these platforms or on one of these platforms. I mean, you look at the people that were initially featured Mm -hmm. as who to follow on Twitter before they built any algorithms around that. And it's like Chris Saka and Ashton Kutcher and like some of these people still have these just unbelievable followings from from getting juiced in that early era.
0: Yeah. I mean, shoot, in a lot of ways, Acquired benefited from this. Like we weren't at the beginning of podcasting, but we started Acquired before the, you know, we beat the most recent
1: rush at least most
0: recent wave and we got (laughs) featured on a bunch of podcast players and you know that uh that growth rate compounds it turns out (laughs) so Zimride's featured as one of the first launch apps for the facebook platform when this happens a good friend of logan's from middle school back in la named john siegel he sees that his buddy logan has done this he's like this is so cool he posts it on his facebook wall turns out that John Siegel no, is okay. mutual friends with John Zimmer.
1: <laughs> That's how they came on together? on the
0: East Coast. This is incredible. So Where did you they find met, this? They had met. Uh, Zimmer talks about this. He does a lot of interviews. So okay. Zimmer and Siegel had met while studying abroad, I believe in Spain in college. They'd gone to different colleges. Siegel hadn't gone to, hadn't gone to Cornell. And Zimmer comes home one night. He's just started at Lehman. And uh, or I guess he's a couple months into Lehman. He's probably just started in his group, finished training at Lehman at Lehman. And uh, he comes home, home home one night and he sees this post on Seagull's wall and he's like, this has got to be fate. Like, I've been thinking about this. I know how to like operationally attack this problem. It's all about occupancy rates. I've been thinking about carpooling. My name is John Zimmer. This company is called Zimride. <laughs> It has to be fate. So Zimmer (laughs) pings Siegel that night and he asks him to introduce him to to Logan. And Siegel does. They start talking, uh, I believe, over Facebook to start. A couple weeks later, Logan flies out to New York City. They meet in person and they jam and they just they hit it off and they decide, all right we're gonna work together now logan's still working as a as a sustainability coordinator at ucsb and obviously zimmer's still in his analyst program at lehman brothers they're not thinking about starting this as like a real company it's like a side project like great like we're both thinking about this like let's do it Mm. so they uh they stay working on it part-time this is a total aside but like this sounds crazy today in 2019 but this stuff happens. like jenny and i have good friends who got married because they met on jenny's facebook wall so like <laughs> it's incredible the kind of stuff that happened totally uh back in the day and it was right around the same time too
1: one tidbit i found that i'm curious if you know the origin of it since you dug into this so much in the s1 uh they reveal that even before it was Zimride uh in 2007 the company was incorporated as bounder web Inc. yes Do you i know saw that bounder web i couldn't
0: figure reference. out what that came from so you know yeah logan and john you know if you're listening yeah. Hit us up. I'd
1: love uh, Yeah.
0: <laughs> Hit us up, acquired FM at gmail.com or in the slides. Also congratulations. Yeah. Also congratulations. All right. So they're working on it part-time. And Matt Van Horn, like, he's he's still involved too. He's the third co-founder. But Matt decides that he he's gonna stay part time. Uh he's gonna be essentially an advisor. And he goes, as we said, to work on work at Dig and, and then Path and and now June. Uh, but he's been in, involved with the company, you know, the whole time. So the three of them, they decide you know, they have to decide go-to-market strategy. They have the tech, they have the kind of product concept, but where are they gonna start? Well, the natural place is college campuses, right? Like <laughs> that's where A, that's where Facebook started, and that's where Facebook's, you know, user base primarily is college campuses mm-hmm. and recent mm-hmm. grads. Two Logan works at a college <laughs> and three, they both, you know, recently graduated. So like, okay, we're going to focus yeah. on, focus on college campuses. They, and that's
1: where some people have cars. Other people don't have cars. Exactly. It would be nice to be able to, to put those
0: together, to do ride sharing and a lot of uh, cost sensitivity. Totally. Totally. So they launch, uh, they choose Cornell as the first school that they're going to launch at. I don't know why they didn't do Santa Barbara. Maybe like Logan was worried about people finding out when he was working there, uh, uh, unclear hmm. but they choose cornell and within six months they've signed up 20 percent of the student body that is actively using this and and the real use case is around breaks. so like school goes on break and like you're driving back from ithaca where cornell is to boston or new york or philadelphia or wherever yeah load up your car and you know share the gas money mm-hmm Randomly, they then get a bunch of other schools that start using it. I, uh, apparently, the University of wisconsin lacrosse, Crosse, uh, they didn't do any marketing there. It just like, you know, popped up. Founded and yeah. started. Huh? Ne- Network effects, man. It's a thing. So they... Uh, they're doing this they start doing at schools that they really want to get adoption at they start doing these crazy marketing stunts they go out and they buy a frog suit and a beaver suit like (laughs) i don't i think they were just suits i don't think they were specific college mascots but then like Uh they would go to campuses on the weekends and uh parade around with signs advertising Zimride while dressed up in these animals you seem like
1: the type of people that would uh, put pink mustaches on cars for sure yeah
0: you can see where the dna comes from and uh <laughs> one one uh one time they do this uh zimmer does this back at cornell he's he's on a recruiting trip for lehman And uh, he goes a couple days early, he dresses up in a beaver suit, does this. And then when they do the info session, uh, he's there with like a managing director in his group. And this girl comes up to him and is like, didn't I see you running around campus in a beaver suit the other day? (laughs) And uh, John's like, "Uh, yeah, let's talk about that (laughs) (laughs) outside, which is hilarious. But it works. And so they're trying to land on the business model for this. And what they decide is they're going to go once they get adoption at college campuses, they decide they're going to go to these colleges directly and ask the colleges to basically buy a license from them to set mm-hmm. up ZimRides as the official car share on campus. So like don't work with Zipcar or don't do what UCSB did where you buy a bunch of Priuses yourself, you know, have it be the sharing economy, even though wasn't called that yet. And, uh, just buy a license from us to operate, uh, mm-hmm. your own version of, of Zim which they do and schools, pay them like $10,000 each. And at the time they're like, woohoo, $10,000. Great no business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, turns out that was not the right business model, <laughs> but we'll get to that in a minute. So they do this for basically a year from 2007 to 2008 gets into 2008. And, um, Zimmer is coming to the end of his analyst program at Lehman Brothers and he's trying to decide, you know, am I going to go work in private equity like all my other analyst classmates who are staying in Wall Street? You know, am I going to go full time on this Zimrides thing? It seems like it's really working. What should I do? Two things happen that help him make his decision. One, Zimrides gets its first institutional investment. Ben, do you know who the first institutional investor in zim rides was there was an angel investor uh, beforehand the vp of finance at ebay sean agarwal uh, who is still the chairman of lyfts board today oh, um, interesting but who was the first institutional investor
1: uh is it before floodgate
0: this is years before floodgate
1: huh oh yeah because that was like
0: 2012 or something i don't know it was facebook <laughs> so no way yeah uh, so not only did again get to the power of launching on these platforms, not only did Zimrides launch on the Facebook platform, Facebook about a year later had started the Facebook fund That's right. and they invested $250,000 in Zimrides to help support it because it was huh. this, you know, growing app on the platform. And they announced the investment on stage at F8 2008.
1: Whoa. Did they hold that for a while? Whatever happened to that?
0: So uh, unclear. It, it appears it actually was a grant and not an investment. So I don't know that they got wow. equity for it. <laughs> yeah. Man, I want bad. that kind of funding. Yeah. Bad move by Facebook. <laughs> uh, so un- unclear. I don't know whether they got equity or warrants or, or just yeah. what, but... Uh, <laughs> pretty funny so once they get the money Zimmer's like okay we got $250,000 like that's a lot of money maybe I can do this before he makes his final decision though he meets up with a good friend's mother who works in the Lehman Brothers building in Manhattan uh, at a at another finance farm in the building and uh she hears about she must have heard about what he was thinking about it and said like I gotta sit this kid down and, and set him straight <laughs> she sits him down and she's like John like are you thinking about what you're doing? You're about to leave a sure thing like Lehman Brothers for this crazy carpooling startup out in Los Angeles. Now this is July 2008, <laughs> and he's like, "Yeah, I mean that is like extreme, but you know, I I really want to do this. I'm gonna I'm gonna do that." And I mean, three this, months this, later, this story Lehman Brothers different- goes bankrupt.
1: Whoa, that's right. I was going to say even before that. I mean, this this exchange of sure thing for stupid risk, like this is on 10 acquired episodes. Ten like, we acquired see this
0: episodes. over and over and over and over again. But literally but this the is timing, like, oh, oh such God. a sure thing like this August, you know, Wall Street institution Lehman Brothers been around forever like literally 3 months later <laughs> Lehman goes under financial and crisis it,
1: happens. Far too big to fail.
0: <laughs> far t- too big to fail. Indeed. <laughs> so, but Zimmer's mind's made up before then. He naturally uses Zimride to carpool across the country from New York out to Palo Alto. He and Logan decide they're both going to relocate to Palo Alto. They're going to make this Mm. a real startup. They're going to follow in Facebook's footsteps. You know, they have all this, you know, now money and mentorship and help from uh, Facebook. Funny story about that, which I will will come back to uh, perhaps later in the episode. So they move into, I think they get a temporary office for a while, but they settle into, they, they decide they're going to get an apartment in Palo Alto that they're going to both live and work out of. And it turns out that it is next door to Marissa Meyer's house, <laughs> and so their no windows way. look out over Marissa Meyer's backyard. <laughs> and Marissa, of course, at the time was uh, one of the senior executives at Google, uh, who had been there since basically the very beginning, um, and was not what's yet, it? but did, would did become they like the CEO become of Yahoo.
1: Neighbor friends, like what's the <laughs> what happens here?
0: Well, so uh, they talk about you know they'd see and hear you know all these. Silicon Valley parties that would happen in in her backyard uh, uh, next door. They'd be like they'd look out the windows and try and figure out like who's out there, <laughs> and dream about someday they could uh, they could you know reach those same heights. <laughs> uh, they do. It just takes a while. So they they basically operate this way for the next two years, which is crazy. So like they have the two hundred fifty k from Facebook and the little bit of angel money from Sean Agarwal, but that's it. And they're not making that much money from these universities, so right. the two of them don't take a salary for in total for for those whole first two years that they go full time on this. They eventually raise a seed round, uh, as you alluded to, Ben, from Floodgate uh, from and uh, Mirko there in 2010 but that's two years later. And and then they would raise a Series A in 2011. I, I think, and, and, and Anne talks about this, I think part of the reason that they were able to raise that seed round was just that Anne and the other investors kind of looked at them and were like, well, these guys are like you know cockroaches. They just don't die. We'll invest in that. <laughs> <laughs> it is incredible how uh, small and, the and so, beginnings were here.
1: So both the Floodgate round and then, I can't remember who led the Series A, uh, but both those were... Mayfield, okay, into into the Zimride concept of into
0: Zimride. Yep, recurring revenue from universities. Yep, they were they were. This is before Lyft, so not long after the Series A uh, that Mayfield does in in twenty eleven. Logan and John, you know, they're they're excited. They just raised an A, and things are going well. But if they're like really honest with themselves, they're not setting the world on fire here. Growth is slow wing they've they've saturated universities at this point they've opened up the product for corporate customers but that's not that compelling like ride sharing back and forth to campuses for breaks is a great use case but like ride sharing to work every day hmm. it's
1: also not daily like i mean they're not building habit here it's it's a you know low
0: frequency event exactly exactly so then they were like okay well we'll as part of the series a we'll open this up to everyone so you don't have to be part of a campus or a corporate network anymore but then they run back into the craigslist problem all over again it's like i don't know these people <laughs> am i gonna get in a car with them yeah so by mid 2012 six months ish after their 68 months after their series a they realize the problem here is with the market not the product and they need to do something different to solve it okay so what happens next here is the official lore of how lyft begins i always like official lore yeah we'll we'll start with the official lore (laughs) great so it's summer 2012 john and logan have come to this realization they talk to the company they say here's what we're gonna do we're gonna hold an internal hack day to come up with new ideas uh and like open your mind like they're you know they must be inspired by Odeo and how how twitter started here yeah and open your mind. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss ideas. We'll vote on what we want to do. Three ideas come out. The first one is called On My Way, which would be an app if you're traveling to alert friends that you are going to see like where you are, kind of like a safety thing, like uh, so that friends could track you as you were traveling on your smartphone at this time. Feels and like a feature yeah yeah feels feels like a feature feel like a feature that might be part of lyft and uber someday (laughs) (laughs) Two, the the second idea they have is called journey and what journey the vision is people using zimride to go on these road trips together having these social experiences journey would be an app that you could document a trip uh with like photos and videos and music that you listen Mm -hmm. to and like Mm -hmm. share a memory of a trip you know um almost there's still room for that well, I guess people use the Instagram for this now. Uh, well, yeah. first Snapchat stories, but like I mean I guess like you could argue maybe this could have been stories, you know, yeah. not an obviously terrible idea. But the clear winner when the company votes is the third option, Zimride Instant. <laughs> uh, and uh, Zimride Instant. Lyft is a little catchier, but Zimride Instant, you know, of course, Uber as we referred to and not just Uber, but a company called Taxi Magic and a company called Cabulous all of which we will cover on the uber ipo episode you know they're of course around they're doing trips within cities but it's more like taxis they're using licensed limo drivers to do this it's not <laughs> peer-to-peer it's not car sharing but it's an experience that people love it's just very expensive and so they're like yeah zimride instant what if we did this in a peer-to-peer car sharing way and we use our network of drivers on zimride but we just do it instant oh brilliant idea inspiration has struck (laughs) incredible you know entrepreneurial moment and so of course they decide to do this they build and launch an mvp app in three weeks they're going to call it zimride instant but they have an intern a design intern uh that's spending the summer with them named harrison Bowden, who still works at lyft today as a designer he's like zimride instant like that's not too good we need a new name how about we call it lyft and we'll lift uh, lift lift.com and the app like that's gonna be hard to get the domain name but let's just change the i to a y and like it looks cool anyway let's call it lift and brilliant and the rest is history sidecar so harrison uh sidecar (laughs) didn't slip there sidebar harrison also designs the first logo do you know what color lift's first logo was yes seafoam green
1: (laughs) yeah it's funny i i I dug up uh in preparing for this episode i dug up my first lift receipt Oh, they, no uh, way! That's awesome. When they were expanding to Seattle, yeah, and it was. Uh, they hadn't yet gone with the pink. What was pink was the pink balloon, but the Lyft, yep. which that logo mark has not changed, was was green, not pink. Was seafoam green? I should say.
0: Yeah, I would love to hear why they chose seafoam green. But anyway, <laughs> and and this uh, this is the legend. This is the lore. And even in the Lyft S one, there's a founder's letter from Logan and John in there, and and in it, I quote here. In twenty twelve, we launched Lyft and pioneered the idea of on demand peer-to-peer ride sharing. In those early days, we were told we were crazy to think people would ride in each other's personal vehicles. One billion rides later, we're able to look back on an industry that has been defined by the products Lyft pioneered.
1: Wow, it's like it's it's a, yeah. a, a humble brag, a little bit of shade, <laughs> a little bit of uh uh you know, subtweeting or whatever you want to call it yes, in an S1. Uh, there, and
0: and so. certainly, certainly referring to Uber there. And yeah. you know, that well, appropriately so. paragraph, that paragraph is not incorrect. And Lyft and the former Zim Ride deserve all the credit in the world for doing that and and creating one billion rides over the last seven years. However, that's not quite the whole story. <laughs> and that's what we're here at Acquired to talk about. <laughs> so Ben, do you want to hear
1: Rosenthal uh, (laughs) uh, has the real truth?
0: Do you want to hear the real story of how peer-to-peer ride sharing started? Come on. Love it. Okay. So you may have heard of a company called Sidecar. You may even remember a company called Sidecar. Of course. And um, uh, by the way, this this story that we're about to tell is, I think, certainly the best story in this episode. Probably going to be the best story this season. May even be the best story of all time and acquired. I'm so excited here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, baby.
0: So, okay, Sidecar. You know, some people who who remember Sidecar was a peer-to-peer ride-sharing competitor from about this time. And they may remember, yeah, Sidecar was first, weren't they? Didn't didn't Sidecar invent this concept of ride-sharing? Well, yes and no. Let's talk about Sidecar. Okay, so Sidecar was started by a guy named Sunil Paul, uh, who's still around here in San Francisco, in September of 2011. Now, remember, it's summer 2012 when the Lyft hack day happens. And Sunil is a super interesting dude. He had been an original AOL guy like way back in the day and uh, working out of Washington, D.C., uh, where AOL was based. And then after AOL, he started a company called Freeloader with a guy named Mark Pincus, which might raise... Crazy perk up the ears of some of our listeners mark of course was later the founder and ceo of zynga and sunil did not co-found zynga with mark but was an initial investor and was actually a board member of zynga for a long time after that whole ride and in between he started a company called brightmail uh, that uh, got acquired for about 400 million dollars so yeah he's done a lot of stuff in the valley he finds himself by 2009 he is teaching at singularity university here in here in silicon valley and he has two students in his class sam and jessica have an idea that they're all kind of working on in the class together to start a peer-to-peer car sharing company and that ends up becoming get around uh which is still a you know large and very successful uh car sharing company today and and we were actually small seed investors back at madrona and i remember working with sam and jessica in the very early days this was super fun the
1: distinction being that you drive that car rather than riding in that
0: car yes you own a car you put it on the platform and then somebody can rent that car from you that they then drive uh, so it's basically it's zip car with cars that people own instead of cars that Zipcar owns and it's a great idea uh still Works really well. And Sunil was so excited about this because he's been, he had actually been thinking about this for a long time, going back to his freeloader days. And it was also percolating around in his head. He had actually filed for a patent back in 2002 and was granted a patent for the system and method for determining an efficient transportation route. That he was thinking about for car wow. sharing and ride sharing within cities. So Sunil's like so excited that Sam and Jessica are working on this. He says, "I want to be your first investor. I want to invest and I want to be executive chairman of the company." And and Sam and Jessica are like, "Yeah, like that's like a lot of <laughs> a lot of equity and a lot of control that you want." Uh, and they were worried about him parachuting in and wanting to take over as CEO, which he probably Mm -hmm. did want to do. And so they say, thanks, but no thanks. And they reject his offer to invest. Uh, wow. And Sunil gets really angry about this. And so he writes about all this later. We'll link to his, his bunch of medium posts about all this history. And he's like, you know, it's totally the wrong thing to do. And like, I was just so, you know, upset about it. Uh, so he's like, I'm going to spite them. I'm going to go start my own company doing this. <laughs> wow. And uh, it's he's like super honest in these blog posts. So he does that. He works on it himself for a while, uh, competing with Get Around. He eventually decides, you know, their challenges to the market he's not doing as well at it as he could he decides he needs to he needs to do something else and so what he wants to do instead is to build you know he sees the rise of smartphones he wants to build a city transit smartphone app so essentially what like google maps on your phone has become mm-hmm. today and what he had his part of what he had that initial patent for so he reaches out he finds a team of computer science students in michigan uh, at the university of michigan who are also working on this he goes out he flies out there he convinces them to come out to san francisco and start this company with him including the the ceo of the company from michigan jahan kana who becomes cto of sidecar (laughs) and uh, so they start this company and um, right around the same time a friend tells sunil about this crazy thing that's happening in San Francisco that he might want to pay attention to because it's pretty related to what he's working on. And, uh, and he says, there's this, there's this group here in the city that has started recruiting ordinary people to take their cars and drive around at night and pick up people, other people who request rides from them, get to where they're going out to bars or home from bars and and like of course there's uber out there but this is just like ordinary people doing it and it's working like super super well and so neil's like oh yeah like i'm really interested in that like tell me more you should take a look yeah maybe we should take a look he's like oh yeah like so what's the service called it's called homobiles (laughs) yes you heard that right it's called homobiles and the motto of homobiles is mos getting hoes where they need to goes <laughs> and this is the most incredibly amazing san francisco-y <laughs> thing that probably has ever been created <laughs> it just i love this this is so great lay it on us so okay so you know san francisco today you come here in 2019 and, like, it's all techified and yuppies and, you know, there's, there's Lyft and there's Uber and there's Airbnb and everything that's taken over the city. But, like, San Francisco was the birthplace of, you know, counterculture. Like, in the 60s, this was, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And uh, we've talked about this. On, there's a great book about the old San Francisco called Season of the Witch. So, Homobiles was born out of that, not out of the tech world. It was started in 2010 by Linny Breedlove, who is a punk rocker and lgbtq icon here in san francisco and as he tells it he was going to femcon in oakland in the uh, in the summer of 2010 mm-hmm. and he was driving some babes to the conference and he says he got there and all of a sudden this is this is his words this is a quote he says all of a sudden the butches and trans guys who saw me wanted to drive and all the babes and drag queens who wanted rides Wanted rides, and then I realized this was a serious need that had to be filled, <laughs> and this is awesome. But like, this actually was, this is a, such a serious need because even in San Francisco, which is you know one of the most tolerant and liberal and you know forward-thinking cities uh, in the country, if you were a drag queen or, or even not just, you know, uh, just gay any, and you, any member of an at-risk population, any member of an at-risk population. And you were out at night, you were at a gay bar or you were somewhere else and you were trying to get home or you were trying to get to another place. Taxis wouldn't pick you up. And, and even Uber, like you could get in an Uber, but you might still have issues. I mean, this happens all the time still, like, you know, people will get, uh, assaulted, people get attacked, people get raped. It's uh, and, um, you know, if you're part of an at-risk population, this is like a serious worry in your life. And so Breedlove started, thought, I can do something about this. He started this organization called Homobiles. And the concept was if you were, you know, felt you needed a safe chariot from getting one place to another, you could text Homobiles and they would dispatch. You could both drive for Homobiles and, they, and then they would dispatch uh, somebody to come pick you up and take you, you know, in a safe way to, to where you need to go. And of course, legally, you couldn't pay because they weren't a taxi company, but you Mm -hmm. could donate to your driver and to Homobiles. And turns out that worked great. Mm -hmm. And uh, Homobiles, at this point, by 2011, had become a big thing in the LGBTQ community in San Francisco. And it turns out they had invented peer to peer ride sharing.
1: So oh, that's so interesting because they get none of the credit for
0: it. Nobody, nobody knows. I the only way I found out about this was Sunil writes about it in his Medium posts, and if you Google homobiles, you'll find some articles here in San Francisco about it. But even in uh, we used a lot of um, uh, friend of the show Brad Stone's uh, The Upstarts, a lot of the research reporting he did, he mentions homobiles in a footnote, but nobody talks about it. they were the first ones to actually pioneer peer to peer ride sharing. And, and doing it for just an extreme need. I mean, this extreme. isn't, you know, I got to
1: get to work in the rain. This is an extreme need.
0: Yeah. This is like, I might die on my way home if I don't have this service. So Sunil is here. He says, okay, great. Well, I got to try this. So he writes <laughs> this. This is a quote from his Medium post. I took home to the airport for a trip to New York. It cost me $20 for a trip that normally cost $50 in a taxi. Wow. This system was cheaper than taxis. Never mind Uber. Homobiles had been in the press, yet hadn't been shut down. It seemed to be operating in a gray area of regulation by taking donations. We wondered can we create a scalable technology enabled version of homobiles that could allow us to create our shared ride vision? Oh, I love so that. that's it. This. That's what they do. They take the homobiles operating model, which is individual, regular people, un- not commercially licensed drivers, driving for the platform, and then individual regular people via a dispatch service that they build a an app version of uh summoning them to pick them up and then the payment is a donation and for listeners if you remember back to the early days of lyft and uh yep. and sidecar when it started it was not a payment because the regulation there yet. it was all donations so sidecar takes the entire operating model from homemobiles Marries it up with the app interface, the smartphone app interface of Uber, and then they start. They launch in February 2012 in San Francisco, and literally the biggest market opportunity since Facebook is born. Like (laughs) what an incredible story! So of course. Sidecar would go on to raise a bunch of money along with with Lyft and and Uber. They would launch intensities, cities, but ultimately they couldn't keep up in the war of capital that we're about to get into.
1: David, do you know my uh, my personal history with Sidecar? I know you have one. Uh, let's let's hear it. Yeah, so I, I know Sidecar well and and loved the service and uh, was a big user in kind of the early days. And I uh, when I worked at Microsoft, I, I worked on a couple of companies on the side, one of which was called Red Ride that uh, I started with a few friends actually at a startup weekend here in, in Seattle. And um, it was I, it was still a side project because we had day jobs, but fairly advanced. It was basically the, the, the kayak for, for ride sharing, which some other great companies are trying to do now. But as we sort of got toward the end of realizing that we weren't going to start it as a, you know, all quit our jobs venture, uh, we were talking with Sidecar and Sunil about a, an, an aqua hire. And and ultimately, Love I decided it. not to, but...
0: Uh, um, you know, what could have been, what could have been, you could have been, well, you could have been part of what happened when sidecar ultimately did shut down. They got acquired by GM, uh, for the assets, not the operating company. Cause GM mm-hmm. simultaneously invested $500 million in Lyft and acquired sidecar. Uh, I mm-hmm. believe they wanted the team and, and the patent. So remember Jahan Kana, who's, you know, from Michigan, uh, he goes back to, to michigan to to gm uh, as part of the acquisition he stays there about a week and then he leaves and joins uber <laughs> where he's still to this day and, and so john do you know what he's doing at uber now he is head of product for new modalities which is bikes and scooters
2: <laughs> wow and uh
0: and, always on uh, the cutting edge and Fred and Andrew Chapin, who was an executive at, at Uber at the time and is now co-founder and CEO of, of waves portfolio company basis was, uh, was a big part of hiring, hiring John and, and, and bringing <laughs> him back and, and bringing him into Uber. So, okay. Back to homemobiles quickly though. This is, this is amazing. They are still around today and they are still super important in the LGBTQ community. So, you know, even with Lyft and Uber You know, as advanced as they are today, like this is still an issue for at risk Mm. populations. You know, you don't know, even though you can see the profile of your driver when they come to pick you up, you don't know what they're what they think, how they behave, uh, especially towards non normative people like this. And so they're still giving rides at night. They're also, though, they do a lot of, they drive people to and from major life events like surgeries, and they provide emotional support during that time, right before you're about to go into something, you know, life-changing. So it's actually now a nonprofit. It's a 501c3. And this is crazy. It still is done by dispatch. They don't have a smartphone app, and they've been trying to raise money to have enough resources to build an app. They've been trying to do it for years. And so we felt like Ben and I talked about this before the show. We felt it was important to kind of pay homage to to this organization that started this incredible industry that now has resulted in you know one and soon to be two massive IPOs. Um, mm-hmm. So we're going to make a a two thousand dollar donation from Acquired to Homeobiles, and we're going to put a link in the show notes in case anybody else wants to too. and And we think it would be. Super cool if the acquired nation could help them get enough resources to finally build an app.
1: Yeah, let's build an app. Yeah, I'm sure. I wonder done. if there's there's uh, there's probably some in kind donations that they could use too. But yeah, super super pumped to be doing this, David. And I think I'm glad that you broke uh, our normal uh, structure of of not discussing anything before the show to keep it all a surprise, so we could uh, could talk about and do this one.
0: Yeah, we really really wanted to do this. So definitely encourage uh, other uh, other parts of the acquired family to help too. Okay. So back to the story. <laughs> so Lyft, you know, we had just told the canonical version of how Lyft came out as Zimride, uh, you know, and that may be true. There was a hack day, and you know, they did decide to work on Zimride Instant, and they did launch it in, as Lyft. But um, before the hack day, after Sidecar had launched in February of 2012. Zimride definitely sees what's going on with them <laughs> and sees them start to get a bunch of traction. So and, and in fact, Sunil and Sidecar, they saw, you know, because they they had, uh, you know, uh, God mode uh, for these uh, for these uh, platforms was not yet illegal. They could see everyone who was signing up for the service and how they were using it and where they were going. They saw that actually Logan and John and Zimride board members were all like super actively using the Sidecar app in the couple months before they started Lyft. So by the time the hack day rolls around that summer, you know, everyone at Zimride definitely knows everything about how sidecar works, definitely knows, you know, the donation model, whether they know knew it came from homobiles or not, they now know exactly how the operational model works. Mm-hmm. And so when they launch Lyft, you know, they copy it all. But they do, to their credit, they do it a lot better. And there there are two reasons why they why they do it better. One which we alluded to earlier, they have the existing network of drivers and supply from the Zimride product that they can onboard onto Lyft pretty quickly and easily. It's like rule number one in in
1: creating a marketplace product. It's like, how do you cheat and bootstrap one side of the market?
0: Yep. Yep. Totally. So they've got the hack to bootstrap one side of the market and people hadn't realized yet, but uh, would come to be known that there's a kind of magic density in ride sharing networks that are related to time that you have to wait as a rider for a pickup. Mm-hmm. If that time is more than a couple minutes, people will abandon the service. And so by being able to bring a, like a huge portion of a huge right. network, you, you get over that tipping point a lot faster. And mm-hmm. so that was a major help to lift. The other thing that they realized, <laughs> and listeners will probably remember this, they realized that like, this is still kind of a crazy idea. And so they have to do a couple things to, a make people comfortable uh doing this you know getting in cars with strangers but also B raise awareness that you can even do this so they do three things here we go here we go here we go first in the app as a rider, when you sign up they tell you to sit up front don't sit in the back like a taxi you're getting you know this is lift is your friend with a car
1: this is ride sharing you're not ride sharing yeah
0: yeah sit up front be friendly and number two as part of being friendly Give your driver a fist bump on the way in and out. <laughs> oh, the fist, I, I thought this was, so, was so weird so back in the awkward. day. <laughs> God, yeah. And you know, you could maybe argue whether one and two helped them win or not, but certainly differentiation the thi- there at least. <laughs> yeah, certainly the third thing they did helped them win big time. So they already had this supply hack, uh, this distribution hack on the supply side. They needed something though to get demand within San Francisco and and future cities that they launched. And um, so they came up with kind of a crazy idea. And here's where the frog in the beaver suit costume (laughs) DNA comes back. A few years earlier, John Zimmer had found out about this crazy this this company in San Francisco that made these funny, you know, bumper protectors. If you're parking on the street in San Francisco, just like in New York, like it's super tight parking. People hit your bumper all the time, and this uh, you know ironic hipster company in San Francisco had made a bumper protector that looked like a fuzzy mustache,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and so you could put a mustache on your car. It was called a car stash. And so as a joke, Zimmer had started buying a bunch of these and giving them to employees and investors you know, back at Zimride. But then when they're launching Lyft and they realize they got to like get people aware of the service and onboard demand, they're like, oh, great. Every driver who signs up for the service, we're going to make them put a big fuzzy pink mustache so on their brilliant. cars. It's and so, so like summer totally 2012, totally like billboards
1: free. You're not allowed to really put a billboard on. I mean, I guess you could wrap the cars, but like, you know, this is this stands out way more than that.
0: Way, way, way more. And, um, you know, it's kind of like when scooters launched. Well, scooters will come yep. back in a minute, but the scooters are sitting on the sidewalk. Here, you've got cars driving around the city with this fuzzy pink mustache. And I remember this, like, I remember coming down to San Francisco at the time and be like, what is with all these cars <laughs> driving around with pink mustaches? And uh, the word of mouth, like, it was real. And it, uh, it lift started to really, really, really take off. And so in this...
1: Uh, at this time, it was differentiation from Sidecar, right? Because Uber hadn't launched UberX yet, so it so, was it was competing against them. Yep, it was competing against Sidecar, but it was really competing against non-consumption. <laughs> right, right, yeah. It's it's uh, uh it makes you go, what's the deal with the mustache? And then you, yeah, it's basically yeah. Uh, it's actually it's funny. It's not really competitive differentiation.
0: It's more just category awareness. Yep, totally, totally. It was probably the last thing on their minds was competing with Sidecar at this whole time, <laughs> uh, but speaking of competition uber is out there you know uber's been around since 2009 at this point they're doing limo uh licensed driver pickups via an app basically dispatch for for limo drivers and black car Mm -hmm. drivers via an app they start seeing this happening and they're like oh crap like uber is expensive and they're making lots of money and there's tons of demand for it. But all of a sudden here's this substitute product out there on the streets that is massively undercutting us on price. Like mm. we got to do something. So now this is like, people don't remember this, but Uber, they, they're they like, they're really mad because, you know, they're Uber, they have all the reputation, they're so aggressive, but like they have been operating within the law. And, you know, technically this peer-to-peer ride sharing thing it's in a gray area but it's not explicitly Mm. legal and so uber gets super pissed and they start lobbying and they try and shut i remember this from brad's book yep yep so they work really hard for about a year to try and get lift and sidecar shut down as being illegal and they're being super principled they're like you know we operate legally and like they're not operating legally and (laughs) regulators should shut them down turns out though it doesn't work probably partially because the regulators hated Uber because they were so aggressive kind of on pushing the rules uh, within the existing um, license driver industry. And so this is great. The next year, April, it wasn't until April 12th, 2013, when, Uber, Uber had already launched UberX, but it was still licensed drivers driving Priuses instead of black cars. They pivot Uber, Uber X into being a direct competitor with Lyft and Sidecar doing peer-to-peer ride sharing. And they announce it. Travis releases a white paper entitled Principled Innovation, Regulatory oh. Ambiguity Around Ride Sharing Apps. And there's the money quote in there. This is so perfect. He says uh, a couple paragraphs in. In the face of this challenge, the challenge being from these, you know, unlicensed uh, peer-to-peer ride-sharing apps, Uber could have chosen to do nothing. We could have chosen to use regulation to thwart our competitors. Instead, we chose the path that reflects our company's core. We choose to compete.
1: (laughs) Boy, Uh, that that is uh the Imperial Death March. (laughs) Yeah, then the entire tone of of the Lyft S1 that's about sustainability and good for the world and great for riders and great for drivers and really
0: like everyone, kumbaya and hug. We choose to compete. We choose to compete. And compete, they did. So they repurpose.
1: And you you know that that white paper was mostly for employees. Like that was a that was a rallying cry. It was a rallying
0: cry, a hundred percent. So they repurpose UberX, which again already existed but was not True peer to peer car sharing. They repurpose it that April into peer to peer car sharing, and the fight is like on. And so it becomes, it was already clear at this point, but then once Uber enters the market, like everybody realizes very quickly that this is it. Like this is the biggest market that anyone has seen in Silicon Valley in a long, long time. It's big, you know, Airbnb was around at this point and was quite big, but Airbnb is quite big because it's a winner-take-all winner in a market for you know home sharing, which is quite large. Ride-sharing dwarfs the market for Airbnb. It's just not a winner-take-all market. So the competition that this unleashes and the behavior that this unleashes yeah, in Silicon Valley is just incredible.
1: And let's talk about this. I was going to talk about it in tech themes, but it's worth just touching on it briefly. And we talked at length with Brad Stone about this in, uh, in the um, episode that we did with him. Uh, what episode was that? Is it Amazon? Uh, No, it was when we um it was oh DD Uber and DD yeah, Um, and he makes this really great point that the network effect with Airbnb is super strong across markets, so it it, it becomes winner take all. Where when you're traveling and you're used to using Airbnb in the last two vacations you took, you're going to use it on the next one. So wherever Airbnb, you know, there's going to be ultimately sort of one one platform there. However, Mm -hmm. with Uber the or, or ride sharing or Lyft whatever, when you are using it? Ninety-eight percent of it is going to be in one city because it's, mm-hmm. it's something you use generally where you live, and so it's not really that big a deal for market by market to be owned by by different players, particularly uh, um, internationally. Where mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of makes sense for you know Seattle and San Francisco to have the same provider, but kind of, what? But not but, that. Yeah. Yeah, but like what to like there's there's very little that Lyft uh here versus the ride sharing uh, company in China uh could could even share to be to be valuable as a cross market network effect. And so yeah. um th- this quickly becomes to your point David even within a country even within a city something that uh, there's going to be mul- multiple players in.
0: Yeah. And and people also didn't realize this for a long time but you know, I think we'll talk about this in tech themes, but where we've gotten to now, because that's the case, it also means it's not a winner-take-all market locally, because you can, as a company, as a corporate entity, get enough resources from right. winning in various markets that you can still compete. Uh, it's like whereas if you're trying to compete with Airbnb, there's no oxygen in the room. Whereas there's enough oxygen in the room, you know, internationally, that you can still compete locally, and that's why you know you haven't seen uber crowd outlift fully or or vice versa.
1: And and another way to put that is, uh, to your point about the tipping point, as long as, okay, taking one step back, We're really in tech themes now, but taking one step back, (laughs) thinking about marketplace assign business models where the supply side is undifferentiated. I don't care who picks me up. I just need to get there versus marketplace assist, which is the platform provides a bunch of different options at like Mm -hmm. Airbnb does. And I get to pick which option I want from the supply side. Um, In this marketplace assign, which ride sharing falls into because supply is undifferentiated, the services are relatively undifferentiated as long as there's something within three four minutes of where I'm trying to leave from, and it can sufficiently get me where I'm trying to go to for approximately the same price. Yep. And so you do end up in this place where, um, as long as there's enough supply uh, for a, a, a given uh, a given geo, then you know there can be multiple
0: players because th- th- both drivers and riders can multi-home. Yep, totally but nobody knew this, uh, just yet people are thinking like, Oh, this is going to be a winner take all market. And like, who are we going to (laughs) back? So the fundraising race is on all three companies, sidecar Lyft and Uber start raising massive amounts of money, sidecar, not as much. And that's mostly why they end up shutting down, but Uber starts raising the most amount of money. And, and not only that they, with of what they do with the money they've also realized the magical kind of three minute pickup time uh threshold they start doing this thing called slogging (laughs) which um uh is an acronym for like uh supply long-term operations growth or something like that uh but really what it means is that uh and all the companies are doing this they send out employees and contractors to order rides on their competitors platforms they get in the car and then they try and convince the driver to switch to their platform (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because the density of of supply is is kind of the most important factor here yeah, and, and
1: not be- only that, they, 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 and I think Uber was more famous for doing this, but uh, ordering rides and then canceling them on, yeah, on competitors' yeah. platforms just to,
0: yeah. And to be clear, Lyft and Sidecar were doing this. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, but uh, Uber built
1: a brand around doing it.
0: Yes, Uber built a brand around doing it. And and they're, they're much more successful, and particularly in the capital raising. So a year later, very quickly, an eternity in this market, but very quickly in absolute time, Lyft is on the ropes. Like, Lyft is about to die. Uh, and what year? What year is this? This is 2014. Yeah. Everybody's spending huge and huge amounts of money. Like there's the slogging going on, but like also everybody's subsidizing rides and incentivizing drivers just to get density and compete with one another. And at this point in time, in 2014, Uber had raised 30 times the capital as Lyft, which was the next best capitalized competitor. And what? so. I mean, I remember this so clearly, like I'm sure listeners do too, like orthodoxy and the prevailing point of view in Silicon Valley was this is winner take all Uber has won. Sidecar is is about to die and Lyft is, you know, going to go the same way. And there's no point in investing in anybody except Uber right now.
1: I definitely felt this way. I mean, I can remember thinking like Uber's such a clear winner, anyone trying to compete to fools errand and it's amazing that they lost the the you
0: know, the enormous amount of money they've already raised. Yeah. Totally. And you know, honestly, Lyft feels this same way too. Uh so they actually initiate merger talks with Uber. Lyft goes to Uber and uh, waves the white flag. And so Zimmer, and at this point in time, Andreessen Horowitz has invested in Lyft and uh, Andreessen partner, John O'Farrell, they go out to dinner with Travis Kalanick and Emil Michael, who's his number two at at Uber at the time. And uh, they say, we want to merge and they ask for 18% of the combined company. And (laughs) Uh, that is exactly how uh travis and emil react (laughs) they're like we're gonna win you're not getting anywhere near that amount like maybe we would consider something a lot smaller they counter with eight percent um which is still actually it's still actually a lot it's
1: it's almost surprising uh with those two personalities that they came back with eight percent instead of one
0: yeah and equally surprising and this is like such a defining moment for lyft equally surprising that lyft doesn't take that yeah. Um but they don't. So the two sides can't reach reach an agreement. Uh, and Lyft decides to keep going. Um, but they can't raise from VCs because all the VCs are like, <laughs> I'm investing in Uber or nobody. Um, so they go out and they raise $250 million from the hedge fund Kotu Management, uh, which KOTU is now a big player and in investing in especially late stage uh startups. But this was one of the first uh private company investments they make and, um, and you
1: got to wonder here like is their philosophy and we're going to talk about ipo narratives here in a little bit but are they thinking that this isn't winner take all or are they thinking ah, eh, we're going to take a flyer that these guys are going to be the one
0: i i don't know i wish i knew we'll, we'll have to uh uh folks at kotu get in touch with us and uh, yeah. we'll have you on the lp show and we'll talk about this um the uh, I don't know what their thesis was at the time because it was really contrarian at this point in time. Um, side note, though, like for Uber, and we'll talk about this on the on the Uber show to come. This was the best, one of the best things that ever happened to Uber because had they acquired yep. Lyft at this point in time, they for sure would have been regulated as a monopoly by this point. Um, mm. Like the fact that another a viable second player in the market was allowed to continue in the U S like, um, especially given everything that happened at Uber later, there's no way that regulators wouldn't have totally cracked down on them. Um, it's a great point. So anyway, it's like how
1: Bing is the best thing that's ever happened to Google. Totally. Totally.
0: Um, it, it absolutely is true. Uh, so <laughs> after this, when um, you know Uber's like super annoyed at this point, like, oh, these guys, they keep hanging around. Uh, things get like things were already ugly. <laughs> things get super ugly. like like probably the ugliest, like certainly I've ever, not that I was part of this, but that I've ever seen uh, in business. So in 2013, back a couple back a year earlier, lyft had acquired this company called cherry (laughs) do you remember cherry ben i don't cherry was an on demand car washing uh company so you could order uh a car wash um, while your car was parked in the parking lot uh a crew would show up and wash your car uh and then you would come out of you know work or the grocery store wherever you were to a clean car cool right cool idea um turns out there's not like that much demand for car washing but like really innovative stuff that these guys pioneered on the operations front and uh lyft had acquired cherry in 2013 because it wasn't viable as a business but they're like yeah like these guys are like really talented and uh the ceo of cherry had risen up through lyft and at this point become the coo of lyft so like the number three executive behind logan and john and uh that guy's name was travis vander zanden uh which i forgot this is gonna this. <laughs> this is gonna yeah. ring some bells also for listeners um so travis uh travis vz uh not travis kalanick um he's the coo of lyft and he brings a ton of innovations that he did at cherry into lyft so like driver onboarding city launching like he massively mm-hmm. improves the efficiency of lyft's operations mm-hmm. um but he's kind of cut from a different cloth as logan and john he's not he's not a. Uh, He's not the mission driven founder here. Um, He's a
1: little more, a little more Uber,
0: a little more Uber. Uh, And, uh, and he sees in 2014 as all this is going on, he sees the pendulum is swinging Uber's way. He believes just like everyone else in the Valley that there's no way Lyft can compete. Um, So he does two things. He goes to the Lyft board and tries to stage a coup. Uh, he goes to board members and he says i don't think john and logan can run this company effectively you should fire them and make me the ceo and the first thing i would do as ceo is i would go reinitiate merger talks with uber and land this plan and um simultaneously while he's doing that he actually goes to uber uh while he's working at lyft and he um he he kind of rogue totally goes rogue and uh says hey i know we just shut down merger talks but like uh we might want to reopen those (laughs) and um we the the royal we the royal we yeah and now now again like this this is really bad of course but like you can sort of see how this could you could get crazy times can call for crazy crazy measures right like this is you would have to believe you were you would have to be utterly insane to think that any other course of action was um you know was viable here um Logan and John though, of course, find out about all this and, uh, you know, they are utterly insane in their conviction and, and mission driven zeal for the company. Uh, and so they fire Travis immediately. Um, and guess what? A couple of weeks later, Travis ends up joining Uber. <laughs> he,
2: so yeah. how
1: does this work And like, is this cause non-competes are illegal in California? So yeah. like you just yep. can,
0: that's, that's how this works. However, of course, lawsuits abound. Right, <laughs> so right. Lyft immediately sues uh, both Travis VanderZanden and Uber. Uber turns around and countersues Lyft for <laughs> supposedly hacking into their systems and stealing their information. Uh, eventually, everything settles um, uh, out of court because everybody realizes like we got bigger fish to fry than right. We got like, all these guns pointed
1: at each other, play. and there's like a you know an alien invasion happening yeah, above
0: us. Exactly. Exactly well, alien invasion that we are invading each other, but this is not the battlefront that we're going to be on. Um, And uh, so now Ben, do you know what Travis VanderZanden is doing now?
1: I believe he's the CEO of
0: Bird. Yes, he is. He left left Uber, I believe in 2017, um, and uh, started and is the CEO of Bird, the scooter company it is incredible how incestuous all of this is uh incredible uh but yeah and and travis van der i mean again like uh two sides to every story he is incredibly talented and you know um a visionary for transportation and operations like when he started bird nobody was doing scooters and now they're everywhere um so (laughs) anyway that's the backdrop to 2014 and uh uh coming into 2015 lift is basically out of money um so they're at the end this is
1: like the story of Lyft: is like they're out of money and at the end and and then oh something happens and then yep, they're out of money and they're at the end
0: <laughs> and then and then oh, something happens um well so the 2015 version of this is they end up getting hooked up uh, so Logan and John are out there trying to raise money from anybody. They know they can't raise from VCs. They've raised from KOTU. They're talking to any other alternative source of capital. They end up convincing Rakuten, the Japanese e-commerce company, to Mm -hmm. invest. In March of 2015, Rakuten invests $530 million. Uh, And Rakuten is, at IPO, the largest shareholder in Lyft, larger than any VCs, much, much larger than Logan and John. Um, And... uh, it uh you know that saves the company totally that time, and then they add some more money in this is you really can't make this stuff up. I remember when this happens. they add more money into the round. Uh, from acquired supervillain, <laughs> Carl Eichen. No way. Yes! He's in this too? Carl Eichen. He's back. We, he is like, we got to have Carl on the show at some yeah, point. Yeah. We for yeah. sure do. Um, Just, uh, <laughs> yeah. And that, that one we'll do in person. Carl, we'll come to you. We we will for sure come to you. So um, listeners might remember Carl from from Netflix. Uh, and uh, what was the other episode he was in? Um, uh, Marvel. Marvel and marvel yes uh, uh and Bl- blizzard was he also an activation active blizzard? One too anyway uh incredible A- activist <laughs> investor carl icon <laughs> activist investor and and what's great is so mark Andreessen and carl icon had had this huge beef like twitter beef uh and um <laughs> and Andreessen was the largest vc in lyft at the time and here's carl icon coming in and i think i think mark was quoted in in the new york times uh, saying like yeah, I mean, we disagreed, but like, I never said he wasn't smart. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is great. Uh, so Carl Iken comes in; they invest a hundred million dollars uh, in uh, as part of this round, <clears throat> and that keeps the company going for another year. And then the the next year in 2016, they're running low on on cash again, and. Uh, they get GM, General Motors, to invest five hundred million dollars. That keeps uh, that keeps the company going. Um, Which
1: G- GM made like a quick, uh, I don't know, like seven hundred and fifty million or something? Because that was in what twenty sixteen? We're in
0: twenty sixteen. So they yeah, so they, three they turned
1: five hundred million into like one and a quarter or something over a few years.
0: Yeah, or maybe even more than that. I'm not. I'm not totally sure. They are, I believe, the third largest shareholder, second or third largest shareholder in Lyft at this That's point right yeah. um yeah which is incredible but still like you know still uber just keeps growing and growing and growing and you know this is the point where Uber's valued at 70 billion dollars um you know is taking over the world they're taking over china um and so the summer of 2016 even though lyft has managed to hang on they had, the new york times reports that lyft hires catalyst uh frank quattrone um uh, Frank Quattrone's firm, uh, the investment banker, to sell the company uh, again to try and sell the company, and they go and they talk and to everybody. They talk to GM, who just Frank Quattrone uh, of
1: uh, of the Amazon episode fame, who, uh, yes. who with
0: Bill Gurley uh, took took Amazon public. Yes, indeed. And um, so they go talk to General Motors, who just invested and said, "Hey, you should you know should you buy the company." They talk to Apple. Apple's working on self driving cars. They talk to Google. They talk to Amazon. They talk to they go talk to Didi in China. They go back to Uber. Nobody bites. Nobody wants this to buy the company.
1: This is the era where, like, the rumors are really starting to swirl around Apple and Project Titan that had, I think yep. rumored to be over a thousand people working on a on a uh, some sort of car.
0: Yeah, uh, it was. You know, this is how much the sentiment was against Lyft at this point in time. Even though all these people knew how important this market was, viewed transportation as integral to the future. I mean, literally, in the case of GM, like, is the company nobody wanted to buy them um I, the problem was the valuation so as part of the, the gm round the company was valued at five and a half billion dollars uh and so that was just too high nobody was willing to pay that uh to buy it um later in the summer this is this is truly the low point for lyft uh dd which had just been keeps going the, it's just like the body blows the uh dd dd the the chinese ride-sharing giant had been a lyft partner uh, international partner and, uh, had been fighting Uber tooth and nail as we talked about on the Brad Stone episode mm. in China. And, um, at, it was at the end of, end of 2016 that they merged with Uber. And so here's like Lyft's like big international partner now is getting into bed with Uber <laughs> and, uh, it feels uh, very, uh, Amazon whole foods, Instacart <clears throat> indeed, indeed. And so, um, so it was just really bad lifts market shares down to 20% in the U S and falling, uh, and heading into 2017, it's like, all right, this might be it. <laughs> and and but, for a reference check on folks, I know not flashing forward, but it's now
1: 39%, uh, or at least in December of 2018 was 39% in the U S. Yep. So
0: doubled since then. And, uh, so what is it? What happens? Yeah. So what
1: happened, <laughs> David? Why? How did did Lyft double their market share and turn the ship around?
0: Well, as we say so often, as as I say so often here on Acquired, what <laughs> external forces could have come into play? Uh, history turns on a knife point. Uh, it was it. Lyft was dead. They were. They were. You know, Uber had the boot on their throat. Um, and then you know one of the greatest unforced errors in business history series of unforced errors um happens starting in january 2017 with the delete uber controversy which of course we'll get into oh it was, that, and it was just the start it was just the start ultimately like culminates little,
1: it's like what is this little water coming through the dam if i yeah. poke on it a little bit what's going on back there
0: yeah yeah and um ultimately culminates in travis kalanick getting fired by the uber board uh, as ceo in june of 2017 um, and throughout all of this, this is the, this is the lifeline for Lyft and, um, they start regaining market share in October of 2017, Google, uh, via capital G invests a billion dollars in Lyft and Google had been a, an early, early-ish investor in Uber and their big partner and the self-driving, you know, future was going to be Waymo and Uber and so this about-face uh, of Google turning their back on Uber and investing in Lyft was um, a huge, huge turning point.
1: And it says a lot, too, here, where um, um, I believe Alphabet, or you know, via capital G, uh, owns, I think, the, a little over 5% of the company at IPO, and GM owns close to 8% at IPO. And you can just see the sort of sentiment reflected there where GM earlier put in half a billion dollars and, uh, uh, alphabet later puts in a billion dollars. And yet Mm -hmm. GM has the greater percentage because the valuations were dramatically different at these times. The, the sentiment around the company had totally, totally changed, um, throughout all of this, uh, Uber insanity, which we will cover on their episode.
0: Yeah, totally. And, um, uh, So much so that I don't think it was the alphabet round, but the last round of funding that Lyft raises privately before before the IPO yesterday uh, was at a 15 billion dollar valuation. What a turnaround from nobody will buy the company. We are dead to uh, 15 billion dollars to IPO to Darling of Wall Street. So real quick. Yeah. Market share, as Ben said, just rises starting in January 2017 uh goes from 20% in the US to just under 40% now uh people are switching um and uh although i feel like it's mostly stabilized now um but uh they hit a lift hits a billion rides in September 2018 um, in November, 2018, they acquire motivate, which operates the city bike share in, yep. uh, New York city and they launch scooters. Uh, side note, scooters are mentioned 159 times in the lift S one. Yeah. I think the
1: only, the only category of things that are mentioned more are, uh, uh, autonomous vehicles.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, they do $8.1 billion in bookings in the full year of 2018, $2.2 billion in net revenue. Friday, March 1st, 2019, they filed their S1. This Thursday, March 27th, they priced their IPO at $72 a share or a $24 billion market cap. And as we said at the top of the show yesterday, Friday, March, th- March 29th, they become the first unicorn. Well, not the first unicorn, but the first of the big, big you know, a plus companies of the current generation to come out and be public and, uh, are finished the day trading at a $26.6 billion market cap. What a story.
1: <laughs> Ooh, And here we are at the end of the story, <laughs> but at the beginning of the analysis, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> They were like, do you think we can keep this episode like around like maybe an hour, hour 10 and no we're way both, we're sort of like, uh, what do we not uh, talk about?
0: <laughs> yeah. Thanks for bearing with us listeners. But, um, You know these stories are too good not to share.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's also worth some other. So before we sort of dive into some other stuff here, like I want to highlight a few other key facts. One is at time of IPO, there are now forty seven hundred employees, several hundred of of which are working on autonomous vehicles. They don't sort of disclose specifically, but mentions that in the IPO um, or in the in S one. Their take rate. Is rising pretty dramatically. So if you look at uh, their, um, you know, revenue per ride is up. But if you look at the, the the take rate, the sort of main driver of why revenue per ride is up, it's risen from the beginning of 2017 to around 20 percent, um, up closer to 30 percent. It's something like 28 percent now. So what this is really proving is, you know, they're because they now have loyal customers, they're able to leverage that into the supply side. Um, and, and gain basically power over their drivers and, uh, and, and, and up their take rate there. And I think, you know, it, it, they talk a lot about, you know, rides per active riders going up and revenue per ride is going, or rides per active rider is going up and thus revenue per ride is growing up. A lot of the revenue per ride going up is really attributable to, uh, um, to this, this increased take rate over time. Yep. And, and so much so that their, their per quarter, like if you look at how down and out they were in, in 2016, um, the, the, uh, per quarter, they were generating $14 of revenue, which is after the take rate. This is sort of, you know, the amount that they get after paying out to drivers. If you look at last quarter, it was $36 per quarter. So, you know, they they're, yeah. they have a lot of levers at their disposal. And I don't want to index too hard on, hey, it's just the take rate because it's definitely not. Um, but it's incredible how they they really righted the ship and started turning everything in this direction. Of, you know, people are staying loyal, they're using it more often. We're able to go acquire more customers although i'd say the, the, that's sort of the smaller the smallest of the drivers um but you know 14 to 36 over the course of two and a half three years um on a on a per quarter basis for revenue is, is huge
0: yeah totally
1: so so david I, where i want to go from here is why don't we talk about the narratives so we added this section after history and facts um that is sort of the bull and the bear narratives so we used to talk about uh you know what um um these ones are hard to grade because you don't necessarily know like we're too close to it but yeah, it was something it just that we happened. had to talk about now but in in lieu of that like it is interesting to talk about what are the stories that that people are talking about that that make this something you you know you want to get in on and what are the stories that people are talking about that make you go Ugh. yeah and i think uh um you know, as, as is, uh, normally the case here, why don't we dive in on, on bulls first? So David, what are, what are people saying that makes this uh, (laughs) a something that you should be super interested in right now?
0: Well, I mean, um, number one, the scale and the growth. So $8 billion of bookings, you know, of, of commerce transacted of, of, um, transactions created is incredible uh, in since mid 2012, so less than seven years, um, and increasing leverage on the take rate side and net revenue of over $2 billion, uh, growing incredibly fast. Uh, that is very, very exciting, especially to public market investors that are not seeing that kind of growth anywhere else. Um, so I think that's one, uh, two, you know, if you read the Lyft S one, they talk about how they're not just a Ride-sharing company. They're a transportation as a service company, and they're building a a multimodal platform, as they say. Now that's a lot of buzzwords, but like one, I think this started to crystallize for the industry when Dara did come in and, and take over as CEO of Uber. Um, and Dara, uh, of course, the the current Uber CEO, came from Expedia, and Expedia uh, bringing that mindset of like this isn't about one product. This is about where you start your search for uh, travel at Expedia and for transportation for Uber and Lyft, and so this is what the Motivate acquisition was about. This is what why scooters are mentioned 159 times in the <laughs> S1. <laughs> um, the opportunity here isn't just as big as as ride sharing is; it is all of transportation uh, that they think they can take on, and and that's incredibly exciting too. And then I think finally the 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 third piece of the um, of the bull case. Is, you know, Lyft does include a cohort analysis in its S1, as most companies. Which is not required, but is becoming more and more popular and is just sort of truly the way to an- analyze these things. Yeah. And if companies don't in their S1s, you should be very suspicious uh, these days. And the cohorts are expanding. So if you look at the cohort of 2015 customers, customer rider customers that came into Lyft in 2015, um, they are doing more. The cohorts are expanding. They are doing more uh volume of transactions and dollars worth of transactions in 2018 than they were in 2015 like that's that's you know usually you see cohorts deteriorate over time if people use it less as they turn Um yep. expansion is is rare and extremely powerful yep So
1: a a couple other things that I want to touch on here. Uh, This is the pure play bet. If you want to sort of have some exposure to ride sharing and and really domestic ride sharing, you know, Uber's in Uber eats. They have a, they're effectively a holding company for all these other international operations. They themselves operate internationally. You know, if you want to bet as a, it's not quite pure play because it's multimodal, but if you want to bet transportation um, in the U S this is a, uh, you know, this is the, the way to do that without mixing in that sort of basket of other things. Um, the other thing and it's you can't be a bull here without knowing the bear case first as has been much much covered all over the place the company is losing a lot of money and um you know they i th- i think david check me on my math here but they they lost almost a billion dollars last year
0: i think that's right yeah
1: and you know so so you got to look at that and go and and we'll we'll talk more uh, i think about that in the bear case but um they talk a lot about autonomous vehicles and, you and you know, they've got hundreds of people working on it. They're spending a lot, a lot of money on it right now. I think it's something like, um, I don't have it right in front of me, but they, uh, uh, you know, it, Lyft believes that they can materially flip their economics to become a profitable company when self-driving comes into play and they intend to be a leader in that space. And so um, I think if if uh, um, if you believe that too, uh, then there is reason to believe that uh, that they could get profitable. They do list it as a key risk that they're not profitable and may never be. So that, of course, is a little bit of a dangerous uh, proposition. You know, the the other thing... Oh, come on. Which we is-
0: don't value companies on the discounted sum of future cash flows anymore. That's so you know, old school. Though. <laughs> it
1: is, it do. is, hmm. it is scary that the public markets are looking more and more like seed investors where people are valuing on a multiple of revenue instead of a, a multiple of, uh, of earnings, um, or perhaps just buying in on a, on a story or perhaps valuing growth over profitability. Like these are things that you typically see in the earlier stages of a company, uh, in the acquired slack, there was talk of a seed PO, um, <laughs> that, uh, that is becoming more and more common. Um, you know, no comment there. But I do think, uh, one other thing for me on the bull case is, uh, Uh, you know, Uber's bleeding seems to have stopped. Uh, but I think for a lot of people, um, Uber's brand is, is solidified as at the very best, highly transactional at the very least, a lot worse than that. Mm -hmm. And Lyft over and over and over and over again in their S1 beats the drum, um, and, and did all throughout their roadshow on being a sustainable company on being a company that sort of does right by, by its people, be it riders or drivers. Um, that, uh, I, am just pulling up, uh, an email that they sent to, uh, um, to riders, uh, uh shortly before their, or I think actually yesterday during their, uh, um, during their IPO yep, yep. and it's titled for once the good thing, the right thing, the business thing can all be the same thing. <laughs> and they sent this to all of their riders. I mean, they, they are doubling down hard on, and they didn't, they
0: have it. a, um, blog post and Twitter. Uh, campaign yesterday about uh, being a responsible corporate citizen as uh, I'm sure now public company. Yeah, I'm sure the anti Uber.
1: Yes. Or anti
0: how Uber is perceived by some people.
1: Yeah. And you know, the other reason why there's sort of a pure financial analysis here, too, that's, um, um, I think there was a lot of fear that late-stage private investors were not being rigorous, and that that uh, the public markets, when when you apply more sort of rigorous uh, discounted cash flows, or <laughs> I don't know exactly how people are modeling this one out, but um, would not be able to uh, uh, um, you know continue the uh, the the valuation rise on a round by round basis. But that, at least from pricing and and trading yesterday, appears to. Uh, uh, not be a big concern
0: and and i would say one last piece on the on the bull piece which we really should have put in the history and facts um but has been a big change really really since the the delete uber you know campaign uh, lyft has been in hiring incredible people here in silicon valley and like this mm. isn't talked about as much of uh you know i think on the the nationwide and wall street type narratives around the ipo but like we feel it and we see it here like lots of great people who riley and sarah worked with at airbnb and elsewhere and you know our friend preed at lyft like are really really talented people who were not working at the company during you know the earliest days of lyft and and during the you know the down days um they know are coming there and doing incredible things so like there's a there's a strong talent story around the company too
1: yep Yep. And I think there's, uh, you know, there, there is much more uh, analytical and and sort of uh, um, financially fundamentally oriented uh, analysis. And um, uh, we've been putting those in the slack and can, can continue to put those in the slack over time. But I think the key takeaway for us here is that... Um, the way that the company has positioned itself with its riders and drivers, the leverage that they're starting to see, um, where they, they actually do have a little bit of pricing power in the marketplace, the differentiation that they have and the talent that they have, um, as well as the sort of wind at their back from growth over the last few years, uh, makes it a super interesting company and, and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know,
0: not in a winner take all industry. Yep. And, you know, to, to put a fine point on the bull case, um, you know, we can debate the merits of valuing public companies on a revenue multiple versus a profit multiple, <laughs> but it, it it is you know it does happen, and certainly it happens in the SaaS world. Um, you know, Lyft's valuation is not crazy uh, at IPO. So where they finished trading yesterday, they are trading at a 12x revenue multiple of last year 2018's net revenue. Um, now, typically, you would trade on a forward revenue multiple. I don't know what they're projecting for 2019 net revenue, so that's what they should trade off of, but. Presuming there's continued growth, they will be trading at a less than 10x forward net revenue multiple. Should, That's not crazy. Is, no, David,
1: let's do a whole LP show on this. This is yeah, a we good. We totally should. We'll do that in the next few weeks yeah, and have uh, um, maybe have a public equities investor on too. Yeah, that'd be fun. Um,
0: okay, should we shift to the to the bear case?
1: Yes, this is the largest ever net loss for a company entering the
0: public markets for the first time. Full stop. Boom. <laughs> oh, and and so. There's that, and then there's there's a, you know, that's the headline. I think there's a, as a marketplace investor too, you know, this was one of the things that stood out to me reading the S one. Um, I don't care as much about net income losses. Uh, because that's how tech companies work like you invest a lot in fixed costs as you're growing and then Engineers
1: as years and yep. you know product and and you know uh operations
0: and infrastructure to do stuff yep all the you know read any ben thompson article and he talks about this all the time and i think he's totally he is totally right which is this is how software in the tech industry works incredible investments in fixed costs but then as you scale revenues those costs are fixed your variable costs are much lower and so you will become wildly profitable a la Google. Google and facebook and whatnot over time uh airbnb what have you um the scary thing about lyft is that they when you do the math and add up all their variable costs relative to their net revenue they are they are losing money on a variable variable basis too so not only are they not paying down their fixed costs um they are each each uh dollar of revenue that comes in is is Even ignoring fixed costs, you know, a a net negative for them. Um, And so the way you with the way you look at this is you add up their cost of goods sold, the COGS, their line item their cost item for operations and support and their cost their line item for sales and marketing because sales and marketing you're having to spend to acquire and retain drivers and riders it's a variable cost as is operations and support and obviously as is cogs when you add all those three line items up for 2018 on their income statement it is larger than net revenue <laughs> and that's a scary place to be
1: mm-hmm.
0: now certainly the rebuttal to that is is that we are in such a large market and growing so fast that we're spending so much on sales and marketing that yes, that is true, but like we need to spend to realize the full totality of the opportunity.
1: Right. That the, the spend is, uh, in sales and marketing is primarily, uh, for speed purposes for expansion. And when we back down sales and marketing just to a rate where the market is at steady state, all of our unit economics look good.
0: Yep. Yep. And, and actually, John and Logan, in some of the interviews they did yesterday around the IPO, and they were asked this question, they said this, they were like, you know, we're doing the thing that we think, you know, we should responsibly be doing as managers of this company, which is investing for future growth, and that the future is so bright that uh, we need to do this now of course <laughs> the other piece of the bear case here is like you need to spend this much on sales and marketing because you're locked in a knife fight in a bazooka fight yeah. with uber and so you're still yeah, does the
1: market ever actually hit seti state exactly. without you spending aggressively and subsidizing every ride
0: <laughs> exactly exactly so this is i think this is the biggest bear narrative on on the company and will probably weigh on uber as well um now, one thing though, if you look at sales and marketing expense as a percentage of net revenue, it is declining for Lyft, so that's a really good sign so in the fourth quarter of twenty eighteen um it was thirty two point seven percent of net revenue they spent on sales and marketing. They spent over forty percent in in the third quarter, so like they're they are growing while spending less proportionally, so that's a good sign um but it's still concerning,
1: yep, and I think uh <laughs> David I appreciate your thoughtfulness as a marketplace investor there 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 are many articles that uh, uh, um, are quoting people who are, have expertise in in various things uh, that well I'll just give you one that is much less kind than than you are here <laughs> um, Hubert Horan, a transportation expert uh, who has long been a critic of uber and lyft uh, suggests that they have nothing in the document that suggests how this could be fixed I mean nothing. And so I think uh, uh, just to fully represent what the bears are saying, it's that when you read the S1, people do believe that this will never turn right side up. Yep.
0: Well, it's not now and they are public. So <laughs>
1: yeah, um, it is interesting. I mean, I, I thought a lot about so this sort of subsidizing every ride concept. Um, I wrote a piece on GeekWire years ago. I think I, I'm four years into it at this point uh, of uh, how I sold my car and went full Uber
0: and mm, I
1: uh, I, I basically did all the cost modeling and I can't remember what it was, but I saved somewhere between five and $8,000 a year, even if I'm aggressively taking Ubers and lifts everywhere and just not having a car living in the city um, and, you know, Zipcar uh, zip car or car to go for longer weekend trips, whatever it is. And I can't help but wonder like that cost difference feels too big like it does Mm -hmm. feel like if you don't have a car and are ride sharing everywhere it shouldn't be that dramatically different than owning a car Mm -hmm. other like that these pricing inefficiencies sort of work themselves out and the market becomes more efficient over time and so it does feel like you know how is it that i can get from seattle to bellevue for you know sixteen dollars uh uh you know in a ride sharing situation like i i understand the economic argument for like well your car is just sitting there for most of the time so it makes sense that you're way overpaying for it and insurance and all this other stuff but like it is crazy the degree to which yeah. it it saves money for me personally and and you got to just wonder like are are, are we in a uh, are we being overly subsidized here yeah. um and how long will that go on and you know are we now subsidized from the public markets yeah
0: right almost assuredly yes <laughs> you know the true cost of your ride to bellevue is more than 16 dollars. yeah um okay uh what would have happened otherwise <laughs> i feel like we explored so many no. paths along the way <laughs> uh, well, i mean Lyft would uh, die yeah i mean um,
1: all these companies would die they, they needed I, how is two 2.3 billion going to be enough like, are we going to have to see additional public offerings from from all these companies? Or I'd say I should say Uber and Lyft or just on this episode. Um, do you think in the next 18 months we'll see additional public offerings to get more cash into Lyft uh, when they feel that the wind is at their backs for um,
0: uh, a good time to do another issue? Well, and I think this is, you know, Zoom filed to go public uh, last week. Um as well and we can't wait to cover that one. Everybody's so excited. They're profitable. <laughs> it's the rare uh yeah. the rare tech unicorn that is profitable. So um yeah, is this the no normal? Like I good question. Yeah. Uh
1: there's actually a really good I'm gonna this is in tech themes, but we're since we're heading there anyway. Um, there was a finance professor cited by uh, the Wall Street Journal that said that 83% of US-listed IPOs that took place during the first three quarters of 2018 lost money in the 12 months leading up to their debut. The journal goes on uh, to note that the previous record for the t- statistic was that when 81% of stock market debutantes were unprofitable. So Wow. So... Uh, we're previous record eighty one percent. This was eighty three percent of the first quarters, of three quarters of twenty eighteen. That's a lot of companies going profitable. Sorry, going public that are unprofitable.
0: Yeah, um, we're in a new world. It's also hard to square that with the these companies are staying private longer. You would think if you're staying private longer, you would also get to profitability by the time you go out to go public. Um, I mean, I understand all the arguments, especially as a venture investor, <laughs> why growth is uh, better, but. Um, yeah, it's a uh, it's a brave new world we live in.
1: Yeah, for how long? That's the question. You know, what shouldn't the pu- this is a good philosophical question. But should the public markets exist in a fairly risk mitigated way so that individual investors don't lose their shorts? I mean, this is why we have accreditation for private investors. Um, you know, should should eighty three percent of companies that are uh, creating offerings for the the United States public be doing so unprofitably or 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 have we reached a point where uh we're now using the public markets for something that uh is is suboptimal
0: well a philosophical debate for another day but i would just say that risk and return are inversely correlated and that is a (laughs) law of of finance so you know if you want high return you need to take high risk yep so all right all right tech tech themes. themes
1: All right, so uh, I'm just going to roll through five here real quick that were listed yeah, in the right. S1. There's something kind of cool about the fact that the S1s, you know, they, they list out all these risk factors that are just like, it's, it's great to read how, how honest everyone has to be and upfront everyone has to be. But then they also list like, hey, what are the, what are the key trends and themes that have enabled you to do what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Um, so they talk about sharing versus ownership, on-demand services, flexible work their mission driven brand appeal which i do think is actually on the rise i feel strongly that mm-hmm. people care more than ever about the the work that they're doing um, and and need that to to motivate them uh, intrinsically
0: um, what certainly has made a huge difference in attracting talent for them and and riders in the wake of you know the delete Uber um fiasco
1: absolutely um and multimodal transportation and uh, um and i think one that they they don't list in there that is is super interesting to me is these companies became possible because the iphone 3g or 3gs yes. launched with an embedded gps that could be yes. used by third party applications and do things like summon a car to you wherever you are and and in total create like a, a close to half a trillion dollars in value or or i'm mean, Am I over? No, it's like half a trillion to a trillion. If you add up all these companies internationally that all basically do this thing of bring a car to me right now when I push this button, like crazy that 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 adding that sensor and API uh, to smartphones just enabled all this to happen.
0: Totally, totally. Um I mean I guess that's one thing that's the only thing I'll highlight cuz we talked about so many along the way and history and facts but um you know Lo- Logan and John and Logan in particular thought that the wave they were going to ride that would enable Zimride was social um
2: mm-hmm.
0: but the real wave that enabled lift was mobile <laughs> and um you know uh not to discount you know the social wave is big and too whatnot, and they're very interrelated but um yeah like you, you just can't underscore how big the mobile computing and smartphone uh wave was <laughs> and you know ride sharing being uh only one industry of half a trillion plus dollars worth of value unlocked by it
1: yep yep it's a great point um and, and okay
0: unlocked by sensors gps and if you think about instagram cameras features on smartphone hardware yeah (laughs) um okay all
1: right i've got a few here uh uh two points i might want to make in one point of discussion so uh this one we said craigslist like five to six times earlier this episode there are so many companies founded by slicing off a piece of craigslist and i think It's really interesting that there's large businesses on their own on Craigslist. But when you add more trust, safety, and efficiency to the marketplace by making it a vertically specific application rather than whatever is happening on Craigslist, they can become a massive business. And so ride-sharing, while big on Craigslist, wasn't as big as it could have been because you know you couldn't see who was picking you up. It didn't have all these you know vertical specific features and sort of real-timeness necessary uh, to, to enable that application. And so I think we'll continue to see even more companies that are, are something that used to exist on, on Craigslist but... Are a vertical slice that it has, has unique functionality. Totally, um, we've talked about this one before, uh, both on the main show, especially in this era of uh, of uh, seed POs. But um, um, I guess it's more like an I Seed O, like an initial. Seed. <laughs> I guess it's, I don't know what the right terminology there is, but seed stage style storytelling uh, in in your IPO, you're always storytelling. And, and, you know, we had a great, great, uh, um, you know, the art of pitching uh, uh, limited partner show too where, you know, you're just always, always storytelling. So much of this S1 is about the problem with the world as it is today and a little bit less about Lyft's particular solution. Like you read through mm-hmm. all the pros um, in like the first, I don't know, 25% of it. And you're like, okay, like I get all the stuff that's wrong. Like, can you please talk about your product and your solution? Like, I understand the trends. I understand, you know, why things need to get better. I, it's 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 really this huge narrative of beating the drum of there's all these problems in the world. We're going to be the ones to fix them all eventually. Sure, yeah. Let's talk about this stuff that we're doing right now and how it's going.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah it's a it's a marketing document, <laughs> and S ones always have been. But like in recent years, people have really embraced the fact that they're a marketing document. <laughs>
1: There's a quote in there that like, come on guys. There's a quote that says the land devoted to parking in the United States could fill an area larger than the state of Connecticut. It's like, okay. And great.
0: Like (laughs) so great.
1: Um, Yeah. All right. So one discussion I wanted to have with you before uh, we sort of go into uh, value creation, value capture, and then grading is, was it a good idea or not for Lyft to go first And is it, on top of that, is it even better that Lyft has IPO'd before we've even seen Uber's S1?
0: I mean, it's, my answer to this, I've been thinking about this, is yes from every angle. Uh, Certainly yes for Lyft, because do the game theory otherwise. Uber comes out first, they're bigger, they're monster, you know, does great. Uh, Uber comes out first, does great. Then Lyft comes out second and nobody pays attention. Mm-hmm. Uber comes out first and does terribly. Then mm-hmm. Lyft is still like is going to do terribly because everybody's mm-hmm. like, Uber's, you know, so uh, definitely from Lyft's perspective, better to go first from Uber's perspective, actually better for Lyft to go to go first, right? Mm-hmm. Because Uber gets to see the reaction to Lyft, which has been very mm-hmm. positive, And now they can tailor their pitch uh, accordingly. And I think, you know, I was joking with, with, with a friend, uh, yesterday, I think the happiest people yesterday in San Francisco were not <laughs> Lyft employees, but Uber employees, because they're like, Oh man, if Lyft is worth $26 billion, like <laughs> how much is Uber with worth, you know, a, a lot more than that. Uh, we will find out.
1: Yep. I completely agree with all of that. All right. So this was a section that uh, we have that I think we'll keep fairly brief here um, that uh, was brought up by listeners several times over the last year. That is, hey, you guys often talk about uh, was a transaction good for the acquirer or was a transaction good for the company that IPO'd and raised that money, but like- Less about was it good for the world and not enough about the ratio between Mm -hmm. value creation and value capture. And so I I think uh, we thought it was important, um, particularly in this one where there's so much discussion uh, around minimum wage and around the contractor versus employee relationship um, to talk about this, because I think. Uh, less so much on the value creation versus value capture side. I think Lyft has figured out a, a phenomenal way to capture the value they're creating. Um, but it is interesting to try and think about sort of like net value for the world. Uh, is it a good thing? And uh, you know, are the masses sort of uh, receiving enough value uh, mm-hmm. versus the company receiving a lot of value? Um, and and David, like I'll I'll turn it over to you. H- how do you feel about? Um, where Lyft sits in this relative to a lot of other companies that are are also sharing economy companies, mm-hmm. and then sharing economy companies broadly.
0: Mm-hmm. Totally, this is such a complicated question. Um, yeah, and you know the cop out. Uh, we we will talk about this now and give some answers, but like deserves way more <laughs> airtime than we have for it now. Uh, as a marketplace investor and a true believer in marketplaces, which I am, you know, I believe in economics and i believe in the concept of expanding the efficient frontier and that what these marketplaces are doing relative to the status quo is expanding the price at which supply meets demand uh for um or expanding the point on the curve where the demand and supply curves meet and when you do that it is better for all participants in the economy so like i truly believe that and i think ride sharing is that case too you know um now drivers are very upset and have uh, uh, about a lot of things and have perspectives on that but if you look at you know how um economically how taxi drivers did in the previous system versus how drivers on ride-sharing platforms do uh i suspect it is pro- marginally more positive on ride-sharing platforms now that said um obviously there are problems and there are unintended intended consequences of all of these platforms you know from airbnb to rover to lyft and uber a super interesting thing though again back to the best thing for uber uh, happening was that they didn't buy lyft because otherwise they would be regulated as a monopoly um mm-hmm. lyft being a viable second player in the marketplace keeps either lyft or uber from uh exploiting drivers uh and so like you could say like you know we were talking about subsidizing your ride to bellevue like that's a net economic gain to drivers um and uh that Mm. is happening because there is viable competition like this is how economics works this is the value of competition in in the marketplace um so like on a while certainly i recognize all the problems and unintended consequences i think net on the whole like if you believe in economics and adam smith like it's working as it you know should which does not mean there aren't problems
1: right and to to um um paraphrase a little bit. You're basically arguing that, look, if there's people that have a problem but can't find anybody to satisfy that problem, and then you introduce an efficient marketplace where suddenly people who have that problem can pay for it being satisfied, and then somebody can make money by satisfying that need, then you've created net new... You know the, Yeah.
0: Well, before, before at, ride-sharing... Creating there efficient were, markets. There were two uh, problems uh, with the uh, uh, city transportation market. marketplace. One was... with the taxi system one was just uh it was hard to access for demand um so the ride sharing innovations have made the market much bigger by expanding the uh ease with which demand can access it but also for supply there there was a middleman like the taxi companies and the medallion companies were Mm -hmm. middlemen that were taking economic rents in the market uh -hmm. and they don't exist anymore so um so net, it is you know the versus a driver that was working for a taxi company, uh, or a driver who is driving on Lyft and Uber, um, more of the economic value should be flowing directly to the drivers in this more streamlined system.
1: Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting. We should do an analysis, or some I'm sure somebody has. Like if you go aggregate all the taxi companies, were they taking more than twenty eight percent of a vig?
0: Mm-hmm. I would assume. They must, well, yeah, I I don't know. It it would be, we we should, I'm sure there've been studies doing the math, Yeah. but even just if, I think they would have had to have been because the cost of medallions, like in New York City or any city, were so high. So you had to be paying back those fixed costs as a taxi company operator.
1: Right, right, right. Um, The only point that that I want to make here uh, is that what has been just, striking and amazing to me is that if you are someone let's say you're immigrating to the united states and you're plopped down into a city where you don't know anyone it is unbelievable that you can go and make a wage by walking into a lyfts or uber's office Mm -hmm. renting you know having the full service car lease rental whatever that uh, apparatus is and then boom you're you're off sort of making a making a living wage uh, and some would argue that of course but um you know having a job instantly even if you you know it, none of your skills translate from whatever you were previously doing um i i do think that is and compare
0: that to the taxi system where yeah, that was not the case
1: yep yep it's totally amazing yeah. totally
0: amazing okay cool
1: Um, okay. So the way that we grade, (laughs) let's bring this one on home. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, is, is, uh, rather than just issuing, Hey, it was an A, um, what do you have to believe five years from now or 10 years from now, whatever for, for this to be an A plus and, and what, uh, what happens that makes it less than that? And I think, um, uh, just to be quick about this, uh, I think if they can figure out, first of all, if, (laughs) So there's a chance autonomy hurts them more than it helps them uh, if uh, the advent of autonomous vehicles just introduces uh uh, relationships with car manufacturers that disintermediate uber lyft you know a lot of these providers uh, but let's say that they play nice with this ecosystem and that uber or that lyft actually comes out with their own self-driving vehicles and um oh my gosh they 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 they, they currently are giving uh what's eight uh 72 percent of the um of the of the ride to the drivers, um, the business looks a lot different if they have, uh, if they have autonomous vehicles, obviously, uh, the question is, you know, in the next two, three years before autonomy comes, which could be who knows a decade or more, um, you know, are they going to be able to get profitable? And I think, uh, um, <laughs> they, they need to do a lot more than just get a little profitable in order for the, uh, uh the enterprise value to be fulfilled. So I, I think it's, uh, Can The big pivot for me is does autonomy actually help lift and get them to a place where at infinitum, you know, many, many years from now, uh, they're a wildly profitable company.
0: Hmm. Yep. Yeah, I think I would reduce it even further, like forget autonomy. Maybe it happens. Maybe it doesn't. Uh, I think actually I thought that one of the interviews uh, that John and Logan did yesterday was quite thoughtful about autonomy and and also in relation to what we were just talking about with um, value creation and value capture. Uh, Even as autonomy comes, it's going to be useful for some use cases and we'll still need human intervention. Like the driver isn't going anywhere anytime soon for the majority of use cases. Yeah. Uh, Whether that driver is in the car or driving, uh, monitoring it virtually from a command center or, you know, what have you. Um, So, Autonomy is like a, who, who knows how it will impact the business. Um, and, uh, but I think the simple, the simple, the, the A plus case is they solve the concerns of the bear, uh, the bears, which is like, they, <laughs> they get unit economic profitable.
1: Yep. 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 Um,
0: and then I think the downside case is they don't. <laughs> and, uh, uh, there, this, this competition with Uber is too intense and, um, everybody keeps losing money
1: very fair I will say operationally a plus IPO like the way that they actually uh, um, you know they needed to access the public public markets for for capital and they did so uh, in a highly non-dilutive way and in a way that got cash into the company and a way that propels every bit of the company forward with a lot of momentum so um, you know I don't think they could have asked for it to go more smoothly than
0: it went totally totally agree. Right. Carbouts. Well, yeah. <laughs> Listeners, that was our we'll move to car this <laughs> But that was uh that was a lot. Oh, thanks for bearing with us. We uh we know that was a lot, but um you know, just to underscore again, like this is such a huge moment for Silicon Valley. Like, um, both lift itself, this whole market of peer to peer ride sharing, and as the first of the, you know, this generation of companies to to come out and operate in the public markets. So um, yeah, very much uh, a perfect storm here. We, we couldn't help ourselves from digging in deeply. So thanks for bearing with us.
1: Yeah. 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 All right. My carve out is, uh, uh, I, I had two choices and I'm going to go with this one because I mentioned Bill Gurley earlier. Uh, Bill Gurley is a, a, a tremendous venture capitalist, one of the best of all time, uh, at, uh, at benchmark. Um, he has a talk up on YouTube that he recently gave, um, called Running Down a Dream, How to Succeed and Thrive in a Career You Love. It is one of the best, if, if you are a college student, if you're getting your MBA, you know, if you're, um, even if you're just thinking about a career transition, it is one of the most thoughtful and amazing talks about uh, the world that we live in today and how you can work collaboratively with your peers to build knowledge. Um, and, uh, and, and, and leverage that knowledge. And I, and he gives these three amazing stories and they're, um, I, am not going to say who they're about cause it's wonderful how he reveals them and, and story tells the whole thing, but these three very unrelated non-tech, uh, uh, um, sort of use cases and stories about, um, people who were, Uh, artists and visionaries and um sort of pursued their dream and and became the best in their field at the thing that they were doing and it is it is just really well done so um i really enjoyed it and i think you will too
0: and we'll put a link in the show notes cool i can't believe i hadn't heard of that yet i'm gonna run not walk to go to go watch that (laughs) (laughs) um uh so great uh my carve out also in video format (laughs) very different lighthearted uh I got recommended on Netflix, uh, love the Netflix algorithms, Cricket Fever, which is a documentary they did on... Uh, have you seen this in your feed?
1: No, but I'm just worried that you're going to get it recommended something on YouTube and uh, I'm going to lose you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll never emerge again. Um, uh, cricket Fever, about the sport of cricket and about the Mumbai Indians, in the, uh, which is one of the premier teams in the... Um, Uh, India Premier League cricket, which uh, is, I've always been sort of fascinated by cricket, but um, in 2008, the India Premier League, the IPL launched, it is a new form of short form cricket called T20. Mm -hmm. Um, It is much more exciting and fast paced than traditional cricket Uh, matches last two to three hours. And it's incredible. They have like cheerleaders and fireworks and like, um, it's like it the is XFL now, of uh, it's cricket. the XFL of cricket. But uh, the <laughs> IPL is now the sixth most valuable sports league in the world um, oh. and rising quickly. And uh, it's so exciting and fun to watch. And so this this documentary uh, that Netflix <laughs> did follows the Mumbai Indians, uh, which are. Um, owned by the uh, family of the founder of Reliance, the the I believe the wealthiest man in in India, um, and uh, throughout the season, it's just so fun.
1: Wow! All right, well, I got it. Well, you, obviously, you'll put it in the show notes. I'll uh, have to check it out. Cool. Well, listeners, if you aren't subscribed and you like what you hear, you should. We'll be gloriously covering all of the big upcoming IPOs. And if you want to go deeper on what it's like to build a startup, get interviews with expert operators and VCs, and explore some of David and my personal investment theses, you should consider becoming a prestigious Acquired Limited partner. You can click the link in the show notes or go to kimberlite.fm slash acquired. And seriously, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I promise you will be overjoyed with how buttery smooth it is to get more acquired right there in your favorite podcast player.
0: Ben is multi-talented and a a great product manager in addition to everything else.
1: (laughs) Thanks, David. All right, listeners, with that, we will see you next time. We'll see you next time.